Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you're not familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle take turns introducing each other to movies, and uh, in this way we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of June, and uh, this month we've been doing a special event that we've been calling Appreciating Peter Weller Month. And basically what we've been doing is every week taking a look at a film from the filmography of the actor Peter Weller, um, who, funny enough, just had a birthday, I believe, just yesterday uh, as of recording. So that would be June 24th. So happy birthday, Mr. Weller. (laughs) Happy birthday, sir. Uh, So this is the concluding episode in Appreciating Peter Weller Month, and it seemed fitting um, that we would do one of the more interesting entries in his filmography. Um, This is actually kind of a special occasion because not only is it an interesting film in Peter Weller's filmography, this is also the first time we'll be exploring the works of a director who is uh, kind of a big deal. Um, That would be uh, David Cronenberg. Um, from uh, what what would you call him, Kyle? Like Canada's number one export, maybe? I'd say he's Canada's David Lynch. Accurate. <laughs> I'll I'll go with that. But um, if you haven't figured it out by now, uh, today's episode is a Naked Lunch from 1991. Of course, directed by David Cronenberg, and starring Peter Weller. Um, this was not a mutual catching up. I have seen this before, but it has been quite a while since I saw it. And this is a somewhat difficult movie in some ways um this is this is a film that you would you would watch in in a film studies class i'd imagine yes this is a film studies class kind yeah. of movie and in fact uh, the way kyle uh, saw this movie for the first time uh, in for the purposes of doing this review was uh it, it's a criterion release correct yes this is actually our second criterion film that we're, we've covered uh i can't remember what the first one was but i didn't even realize it was a criterion film when we did it um, oh i can't remember what it is now god damn it not that it matters right now. But yes, this is another walk into Criterion Country, um, and this was uh, we weren't even planning to do this. And I bought. The, I'm like, you know what? It's I treat myself to a, a, a something new, like maybe a, a used DVD, or maybe I'll spring for like a a nice Blu-ray and try to once every couple months get something from the Criterion Collection that I've never seen that I, I kind of want to see. And uh, I was like, you know what? Naked Lunch is perfect because it's a Peter Weller Criterion release. It's a David Lynch, or David Lynch, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I've had Twin Peaks on the mind all day, David Cronenberg uh, Criterion release, I'm like, I was trying to explain this to my girlfriend, and she's like, I was like, Criterion movies are all good, because she was watching, by the way, she was watching this <laughs> while she was doing work, she was like, this is the weirdest thing you've ever watched, I'm like, I think it might be, um, I was trying to explain to her, like, Criterion movies are all good, that's the thing, they're all good in some way, they all have something to offer, whether or not that's your lane, it's still a good movie. And that's what I was trying to, like, there's something that I'm supposed to appreciate out of this. And I don't know if it's supposed to be kind of a, a reimagining of William Burroughs, William S. Burroughs, uh, like, autobiography. Is it the makeup effects or the fact that it's a David Cronenberg movie and we just needed one for the Criterion Collection? This seemed like the best one. But I wasn't sure what the significance of this movie was and why it was a Criterion release. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably everything that you just said, like a combination of all those elements in the in the sense that it's it's a director kind of taking the story of, a, of an author and putting it to the screen as opposed to adapting uh, 
the novel, which, um, as Kyle pointed out, uh, this is based on the text of William S. Burroughs, and there is, in fact, a book by the name of Naked Lunch, um, or The Naked Lunch, depends on which text, I guess, you reference. But um, the movie bears the same title as the book, but in actuality, it's not exactly that. Uh, yeah. It's more It's more like episodes in the life of the author with elements from that book transposed onto it and kind of melded together into this totally unique product that I, for one, think is is quite quite good. It's very fascinating. Um, I, I think I watched this for the first time when I was in college, like I said, and uh, I don't know what I got out of it, but I was, I was engaged. And I think that says a lot, especially considering um, what I was telling you off air about Cronenberg, his, his editing style. The, the flow of the edit in this movie is fairly relaxed, despite some of the grotesque images and events. Like, it's never, it's never in a hurry f- to get to event to event. And, and it's very, actually, like, the connective tissue between scenes is actually very flimsy. And yet, somehow, you never quite feel lost or alienated. You're just kind of, like... It's almost like hypnotic to watch it in some ways. There's a few, I don't know how many, I've, I've read a few books and then seen the films and vice versa. And um, one thing like, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is like, it's like an exact like um, film, film adaptation. Like reading the book and watching the movie, like there's almost no, there's nothing different really except for the, the character in the book has red hair. Or like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, like the book it's a very accurate depiction of the book in the film. And I think Terry Gilliam does a really cool job with some of the stuff that's described in the book. So it makes me think, I'm like, man, David Cronenberg, I feel like I wanted, I could have watched his fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I feel like that would have been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, he would have done something with it for sure, but Mm -hmm. truthfully, I think the right guy did it. (laughs) But at the same time, could you imagine this as a Terry Gilliam film? Cause now I want to read the book and see they said that this was like an unadaptable book you could not get this to film and Cronenberg was like well I'm not exactly going to put it to film but I'm going to put something similar to it to film I want to read the book and then I want to see I'm like what would Terry Gilliam have done <laughs> yeah I've been listening to the book on tape uh, the, the mm. audible version of it however I discovered um, that my phone is too old to support the audible app <laughs> so <laughs> oh my, my intention God. Yeah, <laughs> my intention was to complete the audiobook while I was at work because I listen mm. to podcasts when I'm at work. Um, but that was not <laughs> that was not an option open to me, so I only had a few intervening hours over the course of the past few days. Mm. Uh, so I got like maybe halfway through, and I will say there are a lot of direct quotes in the script. Um, there are character names and and like vague silhouettes of characters directly from the book in this movie. Um, and definitely some events and images taken directly from that text in particular. But I think, like you said, uh, we're kind of drawing from the entire work, body of work mm-hmm. of, of William S. Burroughs, uh, not just Naked Lunch. Well, th- I mentioned uh, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as well, because the from what I can gather, I haven't read the book, this book, Naked Lunch yet, but it seems like it's an exaggerated um, re, like uh, reimagining of what happened, which is what Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is, or like what I guess what um, Andres Thompson kind of deemed gonzo journalism is like. I'm remembering these things, but I'm adding to them. And I don't know, is, am I is that, am I kind of right with this? Is it like um, was the writing like he's talking about actual things that are happening to him, but like having a hallucination around that or having a story around that that's not 
actually happening. Do you know what I, you know understand what I mean? Mm, I do. Um, it's uh, it's interesting because it's interesting you bring up Gonzo journalism because um, I actually have only read a couple of short stories from a uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Um, so I haven't read like Fight Club and whatnot, but I've read mm-hmm. a few of his short stories and I've uh, watched a few interviews with him. Very. He's a very good interview. <laughs> but, yeah. um, I think I watched he, his segment on Joe Rogan when he was talking about one of his other uh, authors. Uh, and they have like a book club or something like that, like a writing club. Yeah, I, I was, I'd be interested to see the rest of that. Well, the reason I bring him up is not that he has his writing style has any real similarities to William S. Burroughs as far as I can tell. Um, William S. Burroughs did a lot of drugs. <laughs> um, and a, who knows, maybe Chuck Palahniuk has done them as well uh, i'm sure he has <laughs> but the reason i bring him up is the fact that he his background before he was writing novels and stuff was that of a journalist um and you can tell that that his curiosity seems to be what compels him to write about a lot of the subjects that he chooses it's that he makes observation it's almost like he's seinfeld like he's doing like, like observational humor but instead of channeling into humor it's just like he has all these musings that pop up into his head and then he's like, I should write a story about all these like thoughts that I've had. And it's only like parts of his writing almost feel like a procedural where it's like he just has a lot of weird, gross details that he just he, he needs to share with you. <laughs> why, <laughs> Do you see? <laughs> why does working in an office make you want to punch people? <laughs> What's <Again>. the deal? <laughs> yeah. Um, and in William S. Burroughs's case, uh, at least applied to this movie anyway. I feel like a lot of the episodes in it are intended to be like semi-biographical like excerpts from his life where it's like these are these are things that happened in some shape or form in his life and he put it down on paper and spun it and like added all sorts of bells and whistles to it to the point that it doesn't ex- it doesn't resemble his real life any longer. But it was certainly inspired by some some real event in his life. I've always wanted to take a creative writing class, and it seems like a fascinating way to explore your own experiences, especially as we'll get into um, ones that have to do with anxiety. Because I think the, that's the like one of the overarching things of this. Uh, well, schizophrenia comes up, I think, in something I was reading. Um, I don't think it's ever explicitly stated. Um, in my uh, just kind of digging on the author that he suffered from schizophrenia. I think that. Most of this had to do with uh, um, anxiety and maybe depression a little bit. Well, in his day, they didn't really call it that as far as I understand. Um, I don't know if he suffered from schizophrenia, but uh, he definitely had some some medical issues related to his psychology and mental health and whatnot. You got anxiety? Um, well, quit being a bitch. Are you sad? Don't have the blues. Get up. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how things were done. That's how winning is done. Yeah. <laughs> that's how America's built. Oh, uh, by the way, the other Criterion release uh, that we covered was The Fisher King. Thank you. Terry Gilliam Terry film. Gilliam. <laughs> um, and yeah, actually, I, I think Terry Gilliam totally could have done something. Like, what's funny is that I, I think he certainly could have made this movie quite well, but this movie was both written and directed by David Cronenberg. So mm-hmm. if not for Cronenberg writing it, I don't think it would have been possible. This would have been, um, it, it would have been a completely different movie. It would have been a completely different... It would have been more of what the book is, and it would have been more sporadic. 
um, kind of like fear. That's why I thought fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, it does happen in one place, but I feel like Gilliam would have uh, his editing style would have made it seem more interesting that like the sporadic stories. It would have been the last ten minutes of Brazil for hundred for a hundred and twenty <laughs> minutes. It's like Terry, I love you, but this is unfucking bearable. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like I need to sit down. Like, I'm sorry. Fuck I'm off. in a movie theater. I need to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but did you want to get into the movie, or do you yeah. have any other stuff you wanted to throw out there? Nah, you? I think we'll I think we'll have fun. We'll have fun with this one. Okay, well, let's try to have fun because um, it needs to be said. Uh, I'm not sure if if uh, we went into detail about this, but uh, the source text for this book is borderline impenetrable in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, it was written in a style that I, I believe is referred to as cut up. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, you, you write paragraphs or chapters or, or single pages and you throw, you throw it all out on the floor and you just kind of like... A, put it together and make a collage out of your own writing so mm-hmm. um the thesis statement i guess for the naked lunch text was that it, you could open the book to any page and just kind of read it and it would probably make as much sense as if you started from the beginning um this movie thankfully does have a narrative through line it, it, it doesn't like jump around mm-hmm. too much but there are some instances where it does follow that path of like how did we get here? Oh, it's not terribly important, so don't ask. <laughs> yeah, that sometimes you kind of have to know when you're watching a movie, like, how did we get here? In this type of movie, it's like, that's not important. Uh, pay attention to what's happening now. <laughs> yeah, they. I think they they ease you into the pool. Like, Again, I feel like Cronenberg's editing style came in handy big time here, because instead of being jarring, those moments, you, you don't feel lost. You're just kind of like, oh, we're here now. Mm-hmm. And... Um, all credit to Peter Weller as well. Um, I thought he did a bang-up job with this performance. And um, as far as I know, he's never worked with Cronenberg uh, in any other instance. Um, but I feel like they could have done more work together because uh, the way he's lit in this movie, the camera loves him. Um, apparently he was selected because he bore some resemblance, not just in appearance, but in demeanor to uh, the author, William mm-hmm. S. Burroughs. And yeah, I... It's kind of weird that they never work together again after this. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, Peter Willow doesn't really fit into Eastern Promises. I mean, that of that, I think it's the most contemporary. Uh, I'm going to keep saying Lynch. God damn it! It's the most contemporary <laughs> Cronenberg <laughs> film I think I've seen. Okay, well, I'm actually funny enough. I'm I'm more familiar with his early stuff than I am his late. Um, man, Cosmopolis. I wanted so I was actually really excited for that, but I could not get ten minutes in before I was like, I hate this script. I no hate kidding. The script. The dialogue was driving me nuts. Yeah, and you know to get me. To... You know me. Yeah, my tolerance yeah. for shit is extraordinary. That's bad. That's bad. Try to get through yeah. a Rob Zombie film, dude. The dialogue. Ugh. Yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't get through. Was it thirteen? Oh, thirty-one. Oh yeah. God. Yeah, you. I. I got through it somehow, but that should that say something. If you can't get. The reason I put it on was because you told me you turned it off, and I was like, I gotta see this. <laughs> I turned it off and came back. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty awful. Um, no, I there was another one I turned off halfway through of his as well. Um, mm. But yeah, so this has got Peter Weller, of course, uh, Judy Davis, or as I like to call her, Marilyn Dean, uh, from the breakup. Uh, Ian Holm who actually just recently passed away. And I was like, oh, wow, Ian Holm. I'm glad we get to cover at least something of his right now. Um, Julian Sands, who I actually wanted a little bit more of. I understand his character's like, not really prominent to the story too much, but 
um, when we when you finally watch Ocean's Thirteen, he'll pop up in there. And Roy Scheider, who bookends the movie. Uh, I'm sure you were excited about that. Oh, I was so excited. I was giddy as a schoolboy. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to knock off a Criterion slash musical because I want to cover all that jazz because I want to go back and watch it again. Hey, I told you a long time ago I've been wanting to do a musical month. That's, so. I, that one's on there big time. Okay, so if you want to slip that into that month whenever we get to it, absolutely. I'd be down. What's the quote at the top of the film here? Oh, did you like the title sequence? I had to ask you about the title sequence. We never get yes, those anymore. Yes, very much so. Yeah, I, I miss opening titles. Um, mm-hmm. Damn Christopher Nolan in his Batman movie, or maybe all of his movies ending with Probably. Just, like, prestige. Just, it works for the prestige. I'll give him the prestige, because that's a movie well, like you want to, because you're holding on that whole time, like, what the fuck is happening? You shouldn't even get an intro. Just fucking hold on, dude. Well, yeah, I mean, that the title is actually what that's referencing is God, the prestige <laughs> i still think that's his best movie i still love that movie the most i need to see it again oh yeah it's so good i did like it but i i have you and at least one other friend who absolutely adore it mm. and I, to me it's like i can't remember what it is about it that would make you guys feel that way <laughs> so i need to check it out again but smoke some uh, weed yeah, and watch it then you'll understand <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe that's the difference maker um but yeah, this title sequence was—it's very—it's very classic. Um, the, the the font and the color scheme made me think of like "Do the Right Thing" or something. <laughs> See, I thought it felt like a much older film. It felt like uh, they colorized something from like the '40s or '50s uh, for some reason. Well, actually, it does remind me of like almost like a was it Maurice Binder or a, I can't remember the guy who did the opening title sequence for Psycho. But Th- thank a, you. It's exactly what I was thinking. Psycho. It feels just like he's, Psycho. He's a legend. He's a titan of the industry. And unfortunately, I, this is the second time I've forgotten his name. I should, I should probably mention the plot summary real quick at the top before we jump uh, right into it. Um, I found one on IMDb that I liked. Um, and it doesn't even really help. <laughs> but after de- <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, after developing an addiction to the substance he uses to kill bugs, an exterminator accidentally kills his wife and becomes involved in a secret government plot being orchestrated by giant bugs in a port town in North Africa. That sounded like dialogue from a Marvel movie. Yeah, I can see that. It sounded like something like Thor. A villain. Or, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, that that sounded like something one of the Avengers would say after they like after they put together their plan like before they mm-hmm. right before they burst out of the door to go do it it's like so we're doing this and this and this it's like okay like, <laughs> <laughs> break <laughs> but um thanks for that um i always forget to look up the summary but yeah uh, we open with a colorful title animation and yeah the font makes you think oh, like classic hollywood like like a noir film of some sort and this yeah. definitely fits the mold it's totally unconventional like break the mold kind of movie but if it's if it's closely re- related to any subgenre definitely noir i could um, watch six i could easily watch six movies as peter weller in his mid 40s or late 30s early 40s playing a noir detective smoking cigarettes under street lamps just give me a detective series oh it's, fuck dude with his facial structure all how day. is this man how has this man not been in like black and white movies his entire career seriously like lights just lights love ne- this man's face neo-noir just it would have been it would have been his media it just would have been perfect well i mean you could see that's an instance where you could totally get away with really hackneyed narration if it was coming from him with the correct lighting wearing that damn hat yeah and then shooting some people <laughs> i don't know baby. he's got that he's he totally has that detective feel to him too 
dead or alive, you're coming with me. Come with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he missed it. Uh, yeah, yeah, he I missed digress. he missed his arrow. But um, and I I hopped out of my seat because I completely forgot he was in it when uh, the credits of the cast end with and Roy Scheider. Mm. It's like fuck, fucking yes. <laughs> um, funny enough, I just watched. I just crossed a huge one off of my list of uh, to watch movies. Um, Sorcerer uh, hmm. from 1977, directed by William Friedkin. Uh, I have been wanting to see that movie for like 15 years or some shit. Mm. Um, and I finally pulled the trigger on it, and I was not disappointed. I thought it was great. And Roy Scheider's the, the lead in that. So I was, I was like, the timing was kind of perfect. <laughs> mm. um, anyway, uh, the quotes that you had mentioned, uh, there are two of them. Uh, the first reads, uh, nothing is true, everything is permitted. And this comes from someone by the name of Hassan E. Sabah. And then I don't know if that's a philosopher or a whoever, a writer or something, yeah. or maybe a writer. Who knows? Um, and then the second one comes from William, William S. Burroughs himself. Uh, that would be Hustlers of the World. There is one mark you cannot beat: the mark inside. Ooh, <laughs> put a pin Ooh. in that. Um, so the first shot of the movie, aside from the titles, is a red door, and we get an on-screen title saying New York, 1953. So now we have a, a point in time and a place. And then we see a hatted shadow approach the door and knock, and we hear Peter Weller's dulcet tones utter the phrase, uh, exterminator. He doesn't speak (laughs) above that the whole movie. Yeah, uh, his performance is very flat, but actually it's not. Um, And I think that's what makes it so charming, is there's a couple instances where he gets to be more animated, but he's very subtle in the way he portrays it. It's almost all eye. There's very little body language in the way he he portrays himself in this um but there's instances where like he won't say anything but his eyes will just like open just that little bit more mm-hmm. it's like hmm right there with you pete <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah we cut to the interior of this building and uh we see peter weller in a full suit with a hat because it's 1953 and I'm, i don't know when when did men stop wearing hats in this country kyle uh i'm the beatles you're, you're the you're the mad men guy like you tell me they were still wearing them, I think, into the seventies. But I think the seven, like the seventies, it kind of went out of style. But it was definitely through the sixties. Hair got too big. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Hair got too big. Everything was feathered. Um, but yeah, he's in a full suit with a hat, and he is spraying some kind of yellow powder along the wall here. Hats went out when filters came in on cigarettes. That's that's when it was. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. I don't know when that was, but sure, that seems like a a, a linked occurrence. <laughs> but he's spraying this powder, and then he runs out of powder, and you can tell by his face that he's kind of bummed. He's like, that's strange. <laughs> and uh, some roaches pop out to kind of like mock him almost, where it's like, eh, we're not dead. <laughs> um, and uh, he goes back to the office. Uh, well, I don't know what you would call this. This is almost like uh, the garage and taxi. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's, like, it's very grungy. <laughs> we've got a table. You can smoke here. You can get your supplies. You can have your lunch. But nobody has a desk. So uh, Yeah, and there's a man behind a cage. <laughs> um, and he has a confrontation with his boss who's pissed at him because he's like, hang on, what do you mean you ran out of poison? Like, it's your job to carry poison. <laughs> it's like, that's all we do here is poison. It's like, and you ran out? And... uh he has an exchange here with the boss and on his way out he blames it on uh somebody he uses a slur against <laughs> um, yeah. 
yeah there's a lot of that in this movie but that's actually in the book um and what what little i know about the author it actually is in there with purpose it's not it's not coming from a place of hate or something it's just an observation of the world he occupied in the 1950s and and earlier because william s burroughs was not a young man <laughs> in 1953 as far as i know no um but yeah uh there's a chinese guy that's loading all the uh all the uh, like poison gadgets and whatnot and there's a weird little uh, instance where he throws the powder in his own mouth to say yeah. that like, <laughs> it's like to kind of like exonerate himself it's like that's probably not wise <laughs> um and then we cut to a diner and uh, kyle these two characters here you uh, you did a little bit of research into them uh, you want to flesh some of that out yeah so one of them is supposed to be uh jack kerouac and then the other one is supposed to be, uh, is it uh, Ginsburg? Uh, I it could be. I think Allen Ginsburg, maybe. I think they don't. They don't uh, explicitly. Um, they don't explicitly refer to them as these two. But you can kind of get. I didn't catch on at first. It was a little bit later in the film when I was like, oh, okay. I think I know who these guys are supposed to be now. Um, uh, let's see his name Martin is one of them I believe no that's a different guy uh, uh, Hank is one of them as well Hank there we go Hank and then I don't know who the other guy's name what the other guy's name is uh, I Jack believe Carole. it's Hank and Martin Hank and Martin okay so yeah they're not going by their actual names but they're sitting at a table and they're just talking about like writing theory which it's kind of like comedians talking about how bad PC culture is like anytime <laughs> comedians start talking about Oh, it's PC culture, man. It's just outrageous. PC culture. I'm like, okay, I'm out. Like, I get it, guys. This is the one thing that your medium has against it is PC culture. But when people start talking about writing theory, I'm like, oh, my God, just get get past this, please. I could not care less. Well, this this is coffee with cigarettes. Yes. Um, yeah. This is comedians and uh, talking in cars or whatever. Yeah. Um, this, this, this is an example of, you know, two people talking shop and... Like, like we've gone over before, like the, the arena of nerddom is a, is an assemblage of like fiefdoms. There's mm-hmm. like many, like there's a greater kingdom, but then there's like parcels of land in there. That's like, you, you need to stamp your passport every time you step into them. Mm-hmm. And writing is like that. It's an, it's an arena unto itself where it's yeah. like, if I was to walk into a room full of musicians, it would be intensely alienating. And I'd just be like, I have no fucking clue what any of these people <laughs> are talking about. And it's the same thing with writing, where it's like, as a as a person who's literate, I can write, um, but there's subtleties, there's different facets to it that I can't begin to understand yeah. or even remark upon. And uh, yeah, uh, a lot of this conversation, I think, is intentionally structured in a way that goes over your head. Um, but it's just a pretty, at the core of it, as far as I could tell, it's mostly just a basic philosophical discussion of, uh, is rewriting censorship? Like, is the act of retracing your steps and, like, crossing out your own words, is that a form of self-censorship? Um, as opposed to, like, writing in a stream-of-consciousness fashion where if it ends up on the page, it came from you, therefore it is. Um, and it, it's it's one of those open-ended arguments where no one's right, no one's wrong, but if you're high and you're at a diner and it's 1953 and there are probably two or three channels on the TV... yeah. This that only compelling. play programming two yeah. hours a day, you're going to get bored and you're going to have these kind of conversations. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but yeah, the the core of it is is rewriting censorship, and they ask they uh, they rope Peter Weller into the conversation. And they ask him, "Hey, Bill, what do you think of this?" And then his response is, "He's he's the Debbie Downer of the group, I guess." And he says, "Exterminate all rational thought. That is the conclusion I have come to." It's like, uh sure. sure. <laughs> but uh, in some ways, I guess you could spin that as like in support of I think it's Hank. Um, the Kerouac character like in some ways you could argue that he's like almost supporting the argument of like right in a stream of consciousness fashion it's mm-hmm. like if it comes out it comes out um, regardless of whether there's any sort of rationale or logic behind it it's like if guess, the words ended up on the page there they are Yeah, I think they probably shared that I guess that's kind of what uh, Burroughs was up to more or less I, I mean having having sampled a bit of his work yeah maybe um i do think it's later it's interesting later on in the movie where we get to see like him not even realize that he's become a writer i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> like that he's doing writing without even realizing it um almost like he's like reflexively writing and like blacking out in between or something so i don't know if that came directly from the man himself or it was entirely dreamed up by cronenberg but either way Ooh. it's interesting um but yeah they they uh they try to rope him into this conversation and they encourage him to write pornography, um, which I believe at this point in time, you probably could get like paid by the page or by the word or by the paragraph. Um, and in order to like keep the lights on or something, as a writer, this is probably something a lot of people did. I mean, even guys like Lovecraft and, and uh, not Arthur Conan Doyle, but like Robert E. Howard and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure they wrote a lot of trash. Smut. That, yeah, a lot of smut. A lot of shit that, you know, they weren't exactly proud of, but if you're a writer and a writer's got to write, then you know, you got, got to feed yourself somehow. Something um, tells he doesn't me take them up on it. But. Something tells me that Lovecrafts would have ended up with tentacle porn for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> Thinking about Cthulhu's design. I think he would have been scared of it because <laughs> what what little i know of the man is that he was not big on explicit description no so seeing seeing things like that rendered in in imagery would probably be too much for him <laughs> and as far as i know he was pretty frail so <laughs> yeah um yeah he probably wouldn't like it he, all these adaptations of his work he'd probably just be like it's too much <laughs> it's like you guys took it too far <laughs> we're being a little misleading right now because we're actually addressing this film as if this is going to continue like this th- like the way that we're laying out the movie right now is where it's going to go and that is not true we are just giving you what little like Sometimes, like art films, you can get eased into the first half of the film and know what's kind of going on, and then just drop off a fucking cliff and like I have no idea what's happening now. This we start off almost immediately like I don't know what's happening, but we kind of stay there. We kind of stay there. We're not like I have no idea what's happening, but I'm not really quite sure what's happening. I think that's that's actually an interesting aspect of this movie is that I would describe it as being disarming but not alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've covered alienating. We've before. covered alienating before. Yeah, and it's frustrating. It's vexing even. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I'm thoroughly vexed. Yeah. Um, but this, I never felt that way. I never felt completely like adrift. It's just kind of you're you're just kind of along for the ride and. I I keep saying it, but I feel like Peter Weller is the kind of the key to it, where it's like he doesn't seem too rattled by it, so 
why should I be? <laughs> like, like, there's a lot of weird shit happening that I don't really understand, but he seems pretty solid. <laughs> like, he seems like he's got it together. Robocop's here. It's fine. It's perfect. <laughs> I mean, honestly. It's like, <laughs> like Im- imagine, like, Krampus or something. Like, the scene when all the families, like, huddled up in the house and they're all freaking out because it's like we can't go outside and then like you just hear it's like don't worry i'm here it's like better you feel better you know what i think i'm okay with this (laughs) it's like robocop's here i think we're good (laughs) i'm feeling pretty good about this the snowstorm (laughs) you're reading the miranda rights to a gingerbread man (laughs) (laughs) oh man robocop versus krampus (laughs) Make it happen, Hollywood. <laughs> Most, yeah, performance capture Peter Weller. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, he's dismissive of their proposal for him to write pornography. Uh, he says he, he gave up writing when he was 10. And then they tease him about the roach powder, though. And uh, Hank, he like can't even get his words out without laughing. Like He bursts out laughing mid-sentence when they bring up the roach powder. Uh, and the scene ends with them saying, like, in reference to the roach powder, we we think it's a domestic problem. Um, cut to home. Cut to the domicile, uh, where uh, there is frenetic jazz playing. But needs to be said, uh, the score for this film uh, was done by one Howard Shore. Kyle, does that name hold any meaning to you? It did because I, I recognized the name and I knew that you would know who that was. <laughs> I didn't know who this person was. Oh, well, that, that, that's fine. That's, that's, that's totally fine, Kyle. Uh, so Howard Shore is a critically acclaimed composer. Um, he's worked with Cronenberg on almost all of his movies. Um, uh, but for you, he did all the Lord of the Rings soundtracks. Mm, that makes sense. So, so he's kind of good. He's, he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's fantastic. Yeah, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> no, he he's all right. He's all right. Do you want um, the ire of me and a bunch of other fucking Tolkien nerds? You watch your tongue. Hey, I mean, if he'll get them to put on the podcast, fucking hey, bring it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to I'm, fuck Tolkien. Uh, we're gonna be talking about uh, how much big a piece of shit he was. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, this is where I noticed how lovely the lighting was in this movie. Um, the way this this apartment is lit, we get to see like all the angles of his uh his face. Peter Weller's like all the crags, all the angles on his skull are just camera loves it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we're greeted by his wife, uh, Joan, I believe. I uh, you said she was in the breakup. Is that right? Marilyn Dean. She's the artist that Jennifer Aniston's character works for. Oh, Jennifer Aniston. Aniston <laughs> yes. Um, okay, I I didn't make that connection, but uh, I think she's in the she, Ref too, which is an awful movie. Oh, you told me about that before. Oh my god, dude! I don't know what it was with us and Dennis Leary for a minute, but I'm glad it's over. <laughs> uh, anyway, Joan, uh, his wife, uh, she's shooting up, or yeah. yeah, she's shooting up in the living room. Should we? At this point, when I was watching the film, I I wasn't sure quite what was happening yet. I'm like, I'm not sure what kind of movie I'm in, in for. I'm like, is this is this going to be literal? Are we literally shooting up like uh, this extermin- extermination powder? But I think we should go ahead and mention that the references are to drugs. 
but they're never it's never explicitly stated in the film and it's always referred to as something different than drugs yeah uh, i think that comes from the author's personal experience like i said he did everything in the book um he he sampled uh, for sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> indulged maybe <laughs> maybe even took it that far but um at least from what I've experienced from his writing, there's a lot of a lot of text devoted to just uh, explaining the effects of drug use, um, just almost like obsessively. Um, he's really big on exploring that that side of humanity, um, and not only that, there's a lot of repetition of just like specific words. I guess like junk is is a is a word of choice that seems to maybe be adopted from the the people he ran with or something back in the day but um they even use it in this movie in in reference to some of the drugs that are like you said never really named explicitly but you, you're supposed to know it's all coded yeah. um but yeah uh, her reaction is she's just like almost she's not really given too much of a shit uh yeah. she just looks up barely and says you weren't supposed to see this and he doesn't have much of a reaction either um I'm not sure, based on his reaction, whether or not this is a, a recurrence of some sort, like this is regular, um, but his reaction isn't to freak out or anything like that. Um, but yeah, we, we learned that she is shooting up his roach powder, which is why he ran out, because she stole some of it from him. Um, and she tells him that, like, oh, you should do like everyone else and like cover your losses by uh, replacing the powder that I steal with baby laxative. It's like... Okay, creative. I'll give you points mm-hmm. for that. <laughs> um, but her, her logic is that, you know, make the roaches shit themselves to death. And it's like, I mean, maybe. Oh, yeah, I, that I might work. <laughs> um, but yeah, she uh, she goes off on a little tangent here just talking about the, the kind of high that this roach powder gives her. She describes it as being a very literary high. And uh, she also mentions that she's gotten high with his friends, uh, so his writing friends, before. Um she also describes it as being a Kafka high. You feel like a bug. And I put a pin in that because bugs are kind of a thing in this movie. <laughs> Kafka, the author? I guess so, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then his response is, I, I thought you were finished doing weird stuff, um, which I guess points to the fact that this is maybe a thing that's happened before. Maybe not a, Maybe not the roach powder, but maybe some other experimental shit. Um, and then uh, he joins her. Uh, we yes. don't actually see him take in the drugs in any fashion but he does like heat up the needle so he's getting ready to shoot up as well um and then uh we're back to the we're back to the taxi <laughs> the, the taxi office and we we have a discussion about poison it's just like talking shop and whatnot too um i couldn't help but again remark on the lighting here just like every, all these extras that only have like one or two lines here uh all of their faces were picked specifically for their ability to cast shadows in like the most beautiful way because mm. th- their faces have character <laughs> um, and that is that is definitely something that like a casting agent probably deserves some credit for they all look like uh, a big boy uh, big boys uh, crew from Dick Tracy basically um, yeah it, honestly except minus the makeup effects yeah so these were just weirdos from off the street. <laughs> but, um, needs to be said here, one of the guys that he has multiple exchanges with, one of his co-workers is played by a gentleman by the name of Peter Beretsky, uh, who means nothing to me. But the only reason I point it out is that he does the voices of all the creatures in this movie. 
Oh, I was trying to figure out who did all the voices. I had to know, so I looked him up, and I was like, oh, that's the guy from that scene. Um, hmm. He's he's in you know a few scenes in the movie, but yeah, uh, good choice. I liked his voice. Um, but yeah, uh, we get introduced to a couple of cops here, and then they uh, they confront Bill uh, Peter Weller about the yellow powder. And uh, Kyle, do you want to walk us through this little interrogation scene here? Yeah. So they they take him downtown to have a chat with him, and uh, they're saying that his you know. Uh, the powder, like I guess, the powder's been missing, and he's like, "Yeah, I used it to exterminate." And they're like, "Oh, really? Exterminate bugs, huh? Well, we've got a bug here. We'd like you to try to exterminate." And enter. We're like, "Okay, what the fuck's happening in this movie?" Um, I didn't think it was gonna be happening this soon. I saw some of the shots from the from the internet of like, "Oh, that, that's weird, Cronenberg, huh? Huh? Well, let's see what that's all about." They pull up this big box, and it took me a while to figure out what these bugs are talking through but once you see it you can't not see it um this giant bug they just get him out and they set him on this big pile of it looks like heroin it's like a brownish kind of substance they they set him on top of there and like we'll let you two figure this out real quick and the the cops just leave and this bug starts talking to him this giant bug and it's not talking through its mouth but where the wings would basically be laying, the, the wings are out. And there's, um, for lack of a better word, I guess a sphincter or a butthole that it talks out of. Yes, it's a, it, it's a hairy anus. So if you have no idea about this movie uh, and you're like, okay, this, this seems to be, okay, it's weird that this person is shooting up this exterminator powder, powder but now we have bugs talking out of human assholes. Yeah, that's that's where the movie goes next. And we are not even 10 minutes into the movie, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, uh, it kind of throws you into the deep end. I, mm-hmm. I think I contradicted myself. It, it eases you into the pool. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, no, motherfucker. <laughs> like, you take that back. <laughs> it eases you into water that you can like just see over, but like you can't breathe. But you can like you can still try to like get up there and take a breath every once in a while, but it's not it's not comfortable swimming. Well, yeah, it eases you into the pool and then it kind of like steps you. on your head uh-huh. from 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 the edge of the pool. <laughs> it just yeah. kind of dunks you every once in a while. Um, but yeah, uh, this is a giant chittering beetle that, like you said, uh, talks out of a butthole on its back, a hairy butthole, by the way, mm-hmm. on its back. And uh, it's writhing on this mound of yellow powder, and uh, it refers to itself as a case officer. And it needs to be said, all the creatures in this movie who all have the same voice, um, it's a very friendly voice. Yeah. Very friendly, very polite, yeah. very friendly, very Canadian. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it refers to itself as his case officer. And uh, at one point it asks, it says, say, Bill, do you think you could rub some of this powder on my lips? <laughs> As in the butthole on its back. And yeah, Kyle's try, trying not to throw up in his mouth a bit. Yeah, it's and, pretty uh, gross. Peter Weller's reaction is perfect, though, because he just kind of pauses and he almost, he's like almost like leaning back just a little bit. And he's like, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> it's just like he's so checked out. You've seen a beautiful mind, right? I have. 
okay, where the, the the thing is, is he's he's uh, schizophrenic. His son is the actual guy. Uh, his son is also schizophrenic. They're also mathematicians, and they both have PhDs in mathematics, which is crazy hard to get. Um, so there's a thread in that movie about him working for the CIA, and they're like, dude, you are not writing letters to the CIA. You've lost your mind. Uh, so I was kind of holding on to that while I was watching this because that seems to be kind of a... It, these bugs are like, you are a part of some kind of organization or something like that. And I don't... It's one of the few things in the film I don't really understand what's the significance of that. Is that like lingering paranoia of, of the character, I guess? But he doesn't really seem that moved by it. Um, it's representative of too many things. Exactly. <laughs> like it's no, it's like making my head spin, honestly, because it the symbolism is it goes down too many paths. Where it's like on the one, like on one hand, you have uh, the butthole on the back being hinting at his homosexuality. His, mm-hmm. I guess, it's not latent, but it's it's something that he's not exactly come to peace with. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely symbolic of that. Um, and then you have the fact that all the bugs keep telling him to write reports. So it mm-hmm. represents a compulsion on his part to, to write. write. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes the writing is, it's referred to as reports and it's basically episodes from his daily adventures. So the bugs are giving him assignments mm-hmm. and also the bugs only come about every time he does drugs. <laughs> yes, that's very true. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like one, it's a cycle where like one thing leads to another and he does there's really no rhyme or reason to it. But at the end of the day, it's a cycle of just compulsive behaviors where he's driven driven to do all these different things. To what end? Who knows? But there's definitely a lot of temptation and a lot of guilt going on. Like, and a lot, of, a lot of his behavior is driven by substances and, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> this movie's yeah. difficult, but um, those are just some of the things that come to mind. Um, but the bug tells him that uh, his wife is not really his wife. She is an agent of Interzone Incorporated, mm-hmm. um, which the name means nothing. Uh, it's just a, a greater concept that is intangible and unknowable, but it's something that looms over him without him having any clue what it is. In fact, uh, all the various characters, like allegiances to Interzone, are questionable at best. Mm-hmm. It's like, hang on, I thought that guy was part of Interzone. It's like now interzone wants him to snoop on that guy it's like you you just kind of have to go along for the ride yeah. <laughs> um but uh long story short uh during like during this conversation you can tell that uh he's not exactly thrilled by the idea of being talked to by a giant butt beetle um so he takes off one of his shoes and uh <laughs> we get this like bit of physical comedy where he springs up from his seat bill does and he like braces up against the wall like, like somebody just put a, a spotlight on him and he's breaking out of prison, see? Yeah. <laughs> and he puts his arms out and then uh, the bug pleads with him, like, this is going to have some consequences for you. Please don't do it. And then he <laughs> smashes the shit out of this bug and it is disgusting and awesome. The makeup effects are pretty cool in this movie for the most part. Uh, there's only like one explicitly bad shot, I think, of any creature effects in this movie. And I'll point it out when we get to it. Um, but yeah, he smashes this bug good. It's juicy. Mm-hmm. Um, then he breaks out of the police station and escapes custody. Um, and then we cut back to his his home situation. His wife is breathing on a roach that's on the wall. 
didn't the bug told him to kill his wife too correct and that's when he kind of is like uh i don't know about you that's when he gets his shoe Shoe yeah, off the, there. yeah. It's like your wife is not your wife. You might want to offer Bill. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. He uh, he goes back home and his wife is blowing like uh, on the bug. I'm not sure what the significance. I don't know what the significance is of the bugs. Oh, honestly, the significance is that her system is saturated with roach powder. <laughs> no, I mean throughout the film, like the oh. the bugs come up quite quite often. Um, Apparently, that was a mystery to the author himself, because um, I think in the interview that you sent me with Cronenberg, um, he said that bug, bugs are certainly referenced, um, even in, in the small portion of his text that I've explored, um, but it's written in such a way that I don't even think he knows what he's talking about. It's just a lot of it had to do with just word choice and how things flow together. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, that seemed fitting. <laughs> it's like, did you have an image? It's not like Lovecraft or something where it's like, shock off. Like... Tell me, tell me what a shoggoth looks like. If if you're to do that with Burroughs, it'd be like giant underwater centipede. I wrote that. <laughs> like, well, like, I'm <laughs> thinking, I'm thinking of him as you know somebody doing a lot of drugs. I mean, heroin. I'm guessing was one of those things, and somebody who's writing a stream of consciousness where surroundings might come in there, and somebody who's kind of kind of down a rabbit hole of drugs like you would probably have unsanitary living conditions like you would probably have bugs crawling around and that maybe like the feeling of like coming down from certain drugs and then like seeing bugs would just make you feel even worse i thought maybe that kind of seeped its way into the writing somehow and that's how it was kind of like the i guess the kind of the gross feel you've never done drugs so this is hard to explain <laughs> you, you've never done drugs i mean there, i haven't done a lot of drugs but i've i've done a few things where i'm like man i just do not feel good at all the next day and i just feel like shit and then it can even just be like a, a dirty plate sitting next to you and you're like oh i'm a piece of shit but somebody who's really in the depths of it being in like like really unclean i thought maybe the bugs had something to do with that and the anxiety throughout the film that maybe that's why the bugs are being referenced because this was a lot of this was done under drugs okay well um this is me stretching a bit so yeah go for bear, it bear, bear, bear with me i'm gonna take this for a walk um <laughs> so you know insects in particular like bugs basically like it represents a more primitive life form i guess like yeah. lower on the evolutionary food chain and whatnot um, but then, resilient. yeah, like 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 you had pointed out, um, he's his living situation. These are visual references that he can make on the daily, where he can see a beetle in his apartment. So it's an image that he'll carry with him from day to day. Um, yeah, it could represent like maybe like marching backwards. Like I mean, what what he said to his writer friends was exterminate all rational thought. What does that? Interesting. An, an insect something that doesn't think like a human being that thinks with the more primeval aspects of its brain um so it could represent like a regression of some sort um, interesting but yeah that's what came to mind i'm, <laughs> I'm just like making this shit up as i go but, well um, i mean you kind of have to try to make sense of this yeah it's it's fun we're having fun but um anyway uh he comes in and he tells his wife uh we gotta leave town and it's like why because i i killed a talking bug with a butt in its back and i think it was important it said it was my boss <laughs> it's like <laughs> and uh he thinks he's been hallucinating 
Um, and he calls her a junkie, <laughs> despite, you know, him indulging as well. Uh, we didn't get to see it on the on film, but we got to see him heat up the needle. He seems to be functioning. And now that, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe Bugs even represent addiction itself. Because even some of the characters, like one of the characters has the a centipede necklace, too. And they both have him, like, blowing on a bug later. Her blowing on the bug later. Maybe it's just... Maybe it's just the uh, the drugs in general and how they kind of seep in. I don't know. Well, yeah, and not only that, like the more reptilian creatures that we meet a little later, it's also, you know, a, a brain stem kind of line of thinking, like less developed brain and whatnot. Okay. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll stop Something to keep in mind. Uh, the centipedes uh, are a direct reference from the text. Okay. Um, they're, they're actually explicitly mentioned. The whole black meat thing, there's a whole chapter called the black meat. And, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that came directly from the text. But, I really want to read this um, book now. God damn. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, he calls her a junkie, and she, you know, rightfully asks for some brownie points for originality because, you know, who else is shooting a roach powder? <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't see you coming up with that, but... Uh, she says that she was drawn to it, like like an old lover, and uh, he. It's notable that he's smoking while she's telling him this, and uh, she asks him to rub powder on her lips, just as the bug had earlier. Um, and then they, uh, he does so, and they they make out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, cut to the subway where uh, the guy who the actor who does the voices for all the creatures is like asleep, and we see Bill try to steal his equipment from him. Yeah, uh, pre- presumably because he's trying to get at his, his supply of powder, and uh, he has a strange quote here: that's, uh, "The centipedes are getting downright arrogant." It's like I, I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. But again, William S. Burroughs, as far as I understand, there are certain things that he wrote just because they sounded interesting, and hmm. that sounds interesting. <laughs> um, although, like you had said, centipedes are definitely a recurring motif in this film. Um, but he gets a card from this guy. He gives him a business card, and he's like, oh, you're looking for powder? Well, you know, you're not the first guy who started shooting powder on the job. Um, if you're trying to get off of that shit, there's a doctor named mm-hmm. Dr. A. Benway that can help you out with that. So he gives him a business card, and we cut to a doctor's office with Dr. Benway, who is also from the text. Uh, and he's a twisted individual in the text, and we'll is get it? to that later. <laughs> um, and Dr. Benway is played by Mr. Roy Scheider. And that made me very happy. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, look at that guy with that. God, his his profile looks like a Moai statue, like like an mm-hmm. Easter Island statue. He, yeah. he has such interesting bone structure. It's really interesting. <laughs> but, um, anyway, do you remember the exchange that happens here? Yeah, I think he's referring, he's doing the, my friend needs, uh, needs something kind of deal. And he's like, well, we'll give your friend this, um, basically to get him off the uh, powder. He's like, we get a lot of you exterminators in here. Um, you know, trying to get off the powder, and he's like, "Here, we're gonna give you this. Uh, this. Uh, well, I don't know what the stuff is. It's something in a black vial." He's like, "You mix this in with uh, with the powder, and they'll be- eventually start to hate it." And I guess that's the idea. Um, trying to wean them off, as it were. Um, and he's like, "What does he say? It smells like, is that, oh, tainted cheese." Tainted cheese. I'm like, "How taint? What? Which one?" I'm like. <laughs> Because some of those are delicious. <laughs> yeah, some of those are the best ones, man. I'm like, what are we talking about here? <laughs> um, if I remember right, that description comes directly from the text. And uh, yeah, he as he's mixing the powders, he says, it's made from aquatic Brazilian centipedes. And it's like, huh. 
it's like, hmm. it's like can, can I have my money back? <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> Jesus. Um, and then we have a transition, or lack thereof, Kyle, that you had pointed out before we went on the air. Do you want to try to describe what, what it is we're getting at here? Is it here? Because this is where the diner, the Kerouac and the other guy are with his wife. There was another. Uh, we have a brief interlude at a dry goods market, um, just out of the blue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even write this down. Yeah, it's because just, it's so brief. Yeah, he kind of just walks to this market and then he yeah. looks um, at a couple of fellows, look like maybe Middle Eastern descent. I'm not really sure. And they have a table. And what was I forgot what's on the table? Is it the dried centipede? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a dried centipede. Uh, and they kind of just like, yeah, do you want to kind of want to buy it? And he just kind of looks at it, and then I, I think that was it. Uh, so he, we cut to this warehouse market. It's like a dry goods market of some sort. Yeah, there's centipedes on sticks, and then he suddenly gets very emotional, and he almost retches. He almost That's pukes. Right. Um, so what I, in retrospect, I didn't realize this when I was watching it, but in retrospect, I want to say this scene takes place out of time. Like maybe he's having an, an emotional or a visceral, visceral reaction to the centipede because of past experiences. As in maybe this scene takes place way at the end of the timeline or something after he's had all these adventures in Interzone. Interesting. I'm not sure entirely. But yeah, he has this really violent, like his, he tears up and Peter Weller sells the shit out of this where it's like, whoa. Like, did a centipede eat your dad or something? Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't get that way when I see bugs on a stick. <laughs> I get kind of curious and excited. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then uh, we cut back to his uh, his domicile, and we have a situation here. Um, it's an unconventional it situation. <laughs> well, well his reaction to it isn't like what you would expect, but this is a scene for sure. Well, I mean, considering the time... Um, this definitely comes up in Mad Men, by the way. Um, I don't know if his wife... I, that might have just been kind of um, a friend, if you know what I mean. That he was married to kind of deal. And that's what I was getting at when this happened, when this when this scene happened. Because I kind of read about the author a little bit. I'm like, ah, that's why this isn't that big a deal. Well, yeah. No, that's taken from the, the life of the author himself. Um, as far as I know, this wasn't really explored in his books, but in his real life, um, he this was his second wife. And as far as I know, it was just like a domestic mm-hmm. partnership. partnership like he, yeah. he, was, he was very much a homosexual, I guess. Maybe not admitting it just yet, um, but he married her and they lived together. And, I, you know, the nature of their relationship, as far as I understand, didn't extend much further beyond that um but yeah he comes in and uh his two writer buddies are in there and one of them is sitting it's this curious overhead shot where it's mm-hmm. looking down on top of uh, uh martin's head i believe yeah or, and martin's just reading in this droning voice it almost it almost sounds like he's reading from the torah <laughs> like, like, like seriously i've been in a synagogue or a church where i've heard this particular tone it sounded like he, yeah that tone but it sounded like he was reading like chapter titles for like like he was thinking of chapter titles for something yeah it's just a random mismatch of words that don't really string together it's just like I feel like he's high and he's just making buzzing noises in his head that mm-hmm. that feel good or something. Like he's just making the noises to hear the noises. And he's sitting above uh, Joan and Hank who are, you know, getting to fucking on the couch. I 
it's a little more it easing into it. They're easing. It's heroin oh, sex, so oh. I can gather. So it it's not very fast. <laughs> so it's it's lazy lazy sex with no sweat involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dry sex. <laughs> yeah, if you're on heroin and you start sweating, I think you've got problems. Uh, <laughs> you need to get a fix quick because I think you're about to dry out. Well, we she does have some dialogue about the particular type of sex they're having and actually got a kick out of it. Um, but yeah, uh, Peter Weller walks into the room and he just kind of, I guess this is a thing that happens every once in a while, so he doesn't really have much of a reaction to it. Um, but he does stop to talk to Martin for a second and Martin just kind of like explains like, oh, we're, you know, doing a writing exercise and, you know, banging your wife. Um, do you, do you want to join them? And Bill just kind of like gives him a look, doesn't say anything, but he just kind of like gives him a look like, do I ever? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I do, but, but no. <laughs> it's like, now is not the time. Do, do you want to, I have to you, return some videotapes. Well, it's interesting <laughs> what he says. He's like, do you like, like inviting him? Like, do you want to join them? Like, yeah. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. And this is the first of many instances where we'll, we'll touch on his homosexuality yeah. and like the fact that he's maybe not at peace with that. I don't think four is ever a crowd uh, with, with him. So um, I think, like I said, his reaction to this, like walking yeah. into the room to this is, he is steady as a rock. <laughs> so, no. My hand does not shake. <laughs> Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> For the folks that couldn't see the gesture, I was Did making. not think that we would get a departed uh, reference in here. How dare nice. you? You know we always will. But shoehorned um, it in. Bill heads directly into the bedroom, and he noisily closes the door. So I guess that's maybe the only time he loses his temper just a little bit well you but know it's not i think so it's much... more that he's busy yeah exactly it's like it, it's more like i need to do some drugs but also i don't <laughs> mind that you're doing that in there it's just that you know i was really wanting to kick back and watch benny hill or what whatever the hell was on tv back then he's like you guys can slip and slide in the living room all you want i got drugs to do <laughs> like, but yeah, uh, so he, he shoots the mixed powder that was given to him by Roy Scheider. Uh, and then Joan walks in on him, and she has an interesting exchange of dialogue here where she just, like, without him really saying anything, she's just like, oh, H- Hank and I were just bored. Yeah. And, and then he's like, oh, were you now? And she's like, uh, Hank's on junk. He doesn't come. And he, I forget exactly what he says in response, but concludes with her saying, like, I'm on bug powder. I don't need to come. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, oh, well, you guys are perfect for each other. <laughs> like, well, bug powder, not heroin. Yeah. This um, is where it became very apparent to me. I'm like, okay, this, it's, it's a euphemism. Like, it's, it's supposed to symbolize heroin. Got it. But, um, with, but the other drugs, there's one in particular that I'm like, oh, that's, okay, interesting. That's where, how you're going to bring that drug in here. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Kyle, this is about the time where he digs through his, uh, his drawer here. Now, mm-hmm. What, what is, what does he, uh, pull out here? He pulls out a gun. He has the right to bear arms. So he, uh, he pulls out a gun. He's like, Hey, maybe we should, uh, try out our old act. Like kind of like Bill the Butcher and Cameron Diaz. Like, let's, let's show him our old act or whatever. And yeah, she's Willi- just like, William Tell, act. William Tell, which by the way, I don't know if they ever did that. I don't <laughs> So she was accidentally killed. I don't know if it was actually like this, but um, wh- where were they doing this party trick at? Uh, were they just at like somebody's house and he pulls out a gun and just like? Uh, from what I've read, and 
I did research, but not extensive research from what I've read. Uh, like the William Tell Act, I would imagine was done outside <laughs> only. And as far as I know, it was done with a bow and arrow originally. But um, for in his case, uh, I want to say people claim that he referred to it as a thing that they do, like a routine. But then other people say that he's never we've done never, that. Yeah, we've yeah, never seen, we've never that, seen that before. <laughs> well, the other thing I was thinking of was like, remember in Sid and Nancy where uh, – Sid and um, uh, Johnny Rotten come on the screen and they throw the brick at Linda's apartment and it breaks the glass and she's just like, oh, naughty boys. I'm like, if you were like a person not on heroin and someone broke your window, like, what the fuck? So <laughs> like, what is happening out there? So like, well, maybe, I don't know, like they're hanging out with a bunch of people doing heroin, like check this out. Like, like whoa, that was nuts, man. I didn't even... That's not even that big a deal. You just fired a gun in here. Like, like maybe maybe they did do it, which is not with any friends that weren't on heroin. Yeah, maybe in private. But, um, yeah, long story short, she puts a glass on her head, and uh, her expression and her demeanor here suggests that she completely trusts him. You're there. She's so gone that she doesn't even know what they're doing right now. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, he just kind of casually holds up the pistol uh he doesn't aim it properly he does a one-handed and just kind of like yeah. side shots I was like, you know <laughs> kind of half asses it but half ass or no ass uh he gets her right between the eyes um he does loy he does harry from dumb and dumber <laughs> <laughs> can't believe i missed i, I can't believe you hit something he's <laughs> like sideways and like his wrists are wrenched over yeah um I did like there's a, a shot where they show the shell casing like roll across the table. It's a nice little touch that really uh, adds to the intensity of the moment because it's kind of like sterile and clinical actually. There's mm-hmm. no like big squib. There's no blood explosion. She just gets that little pull on her forehead and she collapses. Um, and yeah, you can tell that he's upset, but he's seemingly incapable of processing it. And he just straight up leaves. Like, yeah, I can see that. Like he he does run up and be like, "Joan, Joan, oh, oh, bye. No. <laughs> and he yeah, just leaves. I mean, if I accidentally, yeah, if I accidentally shot somebody in the head and like, ah, I really didn't mean to do that, and I really don't want to go to prison for the rest of my life, so I'm gonna go. Um, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, um, and we were talking about this off air that. Uh, William S. Burroughs has gone on record. This did happen in real life. Yes, uh, William S. Burroughs uh, has gone on record saying that uh, this was like him shooting her on accident or, or otherwise. She, the fact is he shot her um, was the catalyst for him becoming a writer. And he scarcely believes he would have become one if not for this happening, um, which plays into some of the themes, I guess, of this movie about his writing and whatnot. But I, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a thing that he would tell people whenever they asked him about this particular event in his life. And it's also a huge part of why he didn't spend a huge chunk of his life in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he leaves and he heads to a bar. And then there's a young man here that um, you, f- upon first meeting him, you wouldn't have expected him to be a huge part of the movie. But he no, keeps yeah. popping up. Is this um, Kiki? This is Kiki. So, yeah, I mentioned um, off air that uh, the character playing Hank, is that who it is, the guy with the glasses? 
Uh, it's either Hank or Martin. Yeah, he's uh, supposed to be um, one of his photographer friends that was famous at the time. Um, and he has a bunch of photos of uh, he, Kerouac, and uh, Burroughs and, and other places. And in Tangier, there's a picture of Burroughs sitting with T- uh, Kiki. Um, the kid who looks pretty young, uh, not illegal young, but like he just turned 18 young kind of thing. I mean, William S. Burroughs, from what I can tell, lived a pretty fucking crazy life. So, you know, if that was the case, it's not a good thing. But yeah, well, Bukowski would, did it in America, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, needs to be said, uh, I don't know if you noticed this or not, or if you if you can follow me here, but I feel like Kiki looks like a young Ray Liotta, like mm-hmm. way more handsome, but just like a, take all the rough edges of Ray Liotta and like, like take the, the blur tool in Photoshop and apply that to a young Ray Liotta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. This is also would have been kind of fun if like a 40 year old Ray Liotta was playing Kiki. <laughs> I mean, have you seen some of the commercials he's done in the past like five years? Yeah, I love they, his. They photoshopped the fuck out of him. <laughs> I love his Chantix, his Chantix commercials. Yeah, that's the one. The where it's commercial. two lines. He's like, I could never quit smoking. <laughs> Chantix is the only thing that worked. I'm like, <laughs> that was brilliant, really, Otto. Brilliant. <laughs> I like how they, uh, the way they staged that particular commercial. He's on a movie set. It's like, he's not on a movie set. He's not on a movie set. <laughs> <laughs> Although, um, uh, what what's the Scar Joe and uh, Kylo Ren movie he apparently is very good in. Oh, I I don't know. Yeah, um, I forget what that movie's called, but it, it's Goodfellas. Very, very, <laughs> yeah, it was it was Goodfellas. <laughs> Scar Joe wasn't born yet, but it's like no, she was probably a little kid. But I think it's Marriage um, Story. Yeah, Marriage Story. Uh, apparently, he's very good in that. But um, anyway, yeah, we meet Kiki, and we see right off the bat that he has a centipede necklace, and uh, he is very brash brazen here uh, it's like he cuts through all the bullshit and uh he straight up asks uh are you a word that we can't say on this podcast because i don't mm. feel comfortable yeah we're not gonna um, say that uh yeah and uh peter weller responds uh not by nature no i am not um <laughs> and that's a very evasive way of answering that particular question oh, in, it's a, in reference to homosexuality kiki's dead he died oh. in 2005 Wow, Kiki was a young man in 1991, so he was yeah. probably not that old. No. Um, well, Kiki was very handsome back in yeah. 1991. <laughs> I think he was 27. What... He was like 26 or 27. Oh, he had the Ralph Macchio disease? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Kiki confronts him here in this bar, and uh, he he starts to like he starts to come around to the fact that it's like, I might be gay. But I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna keep dodging it for now. We'll we'll get to that later, Kiki. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I mean the way he says it is like I wouldn't say I'm one of those, but mm, how, his circumstances have forced me to consider yada yada yada. And then Kiki cuts him off and says, "Hey, meet my lizard friend." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think this is meant to just kind of like mirror his his situation at that point in his life it's like not really ready to answer that question truthfully just yet mm-hmm. it's like I, I won't run away from the conversation but i'm not ready to give you a straight answer um but yeah we meet mugwa <laughs> do you want to try to describe mugwa kyle mugwa is that the dude sitting next to him the bug thing yeah 
Yeah, no, I don't have him in my notes. But I just have Bug and Bar and then Arrow Gay Fellas. Yeah, uh, Mug was in there. And unlike the bug that we met earlier, the one with the anus on its back, uh, Mugwa is like a kind of reptilian slash insectoid but humanoid figure. So he's roughly the size of a man. And he's sitting at the bar and he's like drinking a cocktail or something. Some kind of fruity drink, actually. Have we um, mentioned that he's in a different country now? Uh, in the bar here, you mean? Yeah. Is he in I another... don't know that he is yet. Um, this bar might be in New York, and this is like the transition to Interzone. Okay. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think he's gone yet. He's not the quite next... there. He's close. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The next scene is uh, at the pawn shop. But... Yeah, the gun for typewriter. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, long story short, Mugwa recruits him to Interzone. Um, which is kind of strange being as I think the bug was warning him about Interzone. So like I said, there's some inconsistencies here that are intentional on the part of the filmmaker, um, but in terms of uh, the audience standpoint, kind of puzzling. Um, and yeah, Mugwa tells him, like, I need a va- I need a report, and I'm not exactly going to tell you what on, but I want tasty details. And this is an explicit reference to him having just shot a woman in the fucking face. Um, so the this alien this alien creature is encouraging him to write it wants a typed report it doesn't want it doesn't want it handwritten it wants it typed um and then uh yeah he leaves and our next scene takes place in a pawn shop where we trade our pistol for a typewriter and uh i believe martin comes in here to try to like not not urge him to like not leave or whatever but he just like sends him off essentially and we get this uh, really cool image here where when uh, when the typewriter is being pulled out of the display case, uh, there's a statue that gets placed in there. Um, did you did you notice what what it looked like? Yeah, it was like a bug. Like, um, is it what, what happens to Kiki later in the film? The pose is yeah. very similar, yeah. um, but the creature on his back is is Mugwa. It's not a centipede thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a really fascinating looking statue. It's a very well crafted. Uh, definitely Cronenberg-esque imagery <laughs> for sure um, being as we're dealing with the man's work directly but um, yeah uh, then we, we cut to Bill typing a report on the assassination of Joan at least that's like explicitly the title like the heading of what he's typing so we get a shot of his typewriter and it says like a report on the assassination of Joan so and so and he's in a cafe that is just filled with writers just a whole bunch of novelists <laughs> a whole bunch of people working on their novels um and yeah it's like a cafe that's bustling and i noticed here that um and this is something that's not an isolated instance um his writing is is full of typos hmm. like it, uh, there's a lot of misplaced punctuation and misspellings that i was like i mean everything that we know about this character that suggests that yeah he'd probably write like that oh, yeah. like, especially on a typewriter where you you can't backspace you have to wipe things out and stuff like that so that's how i would write on a typewriter i think it's i think it's out of necessity it probably completely changed the nature of writing as a medium to be Mm -hmm. honest like being able to constantly question yourself and back take steps backwards so maybe maybe that's a discussion that's more interesting than we're giving it credit for (laughs) um but yeah uh this is where he meets uh hans i believe who I didn't catch his name until like towards the end of this movie. Oh, I had to um, look it up. Yeah, uh, 
he has a curious accent. Um, Hans is kind of a fitting name because it's like, where are you from, Hans? Far away. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Hans criticizes his choice of equipment, which will become a recurring thing later on in the film. And uh, this is where he brings up the black meat, um, which is, this is the first time it's spoken of, but um, like I said, it comes directly from the source text. Um, and he, Bill is trying to ignore him for the most part, but it isn't until Dr. Benway is mentioned in the conversation, a, a.k.a. Roy Scheider, um, that his, his interest is piqued. Um, and then we cut uh, to the streets of Interzone, which is made up to look like Tangier. Or, yeah. or some part of Morocco or North Africa. Um, and we get to walk through the streets a little bit. It has that Moss Eisley kind of feel to it. <laughs> it's kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then we go to the Black Meat Slaughterhouse. And uh, damn, uh, whoever did the uh, creature effects in this movie, I hope they got paid. Because, um, yeah, some of the centipede uh, props in this, in this scene in particular are pretty grisly and interesting looking. But uh, yeah, uh, basically we're doing like some sort of business deal here. Um, a, a problem with some of the dialogue in this movie is that it, like I said, it's not alienating, but it does kind of move along without you sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure what was going on here, other than the fact that Bill Bill's interest was piqued because Doctor Benway was mentioned, and uh, the black meat may as well be the black powder, which is something that he's apparently developing a taste for. Um, as evidenced by the fact that a platter of like black powder is served up to him and he asks if he can partake and scene. Um, and then uh, we see Bill back at work and uh, we see that he has track marks on his arm and he's smoking and he does this move where he's leaning way back in his chair with his head pitched backward and he looks like he is in a different dimension right now. Um, and I notice, like, his typewriter starts typing on its own, um, and <laughs> it starts talking to him. Um, spoiler alert, it's about to turn into a bug, but um, I, I like that he does this move where his eyes are shut, and he's, like, kind of rocking back and forth, and he reaches for the cigarette in his mouth, and his fingers go to the wrong side of his mouth and mm-hmm. just completely miss it, and they have to, like, f- he has to feel his way back to his own cigarette. <laughs> And then uh, the bug starts talking to him. I was probably I was wondering. I was guessing it was probably like opium or something. Just instead of heroin, it was just just um, opium. That's what I was guessing. Black. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Um, I I don't know that it's terribly important what it's what it's meant to be. I think it's having roughly the same effect on him. I mean, based on his body language, you, yeah, and, yeah. You know, track marks and stuff, and just that totally zoned out like euphoric kind of look he has um but yeah uh his typewriter uh a clark nova which is kind of the i guess it becomes the official name for the bug later on um, but his his a uh, clark his clark nova model typewriter transforms into a bug and i like what they did here where um it's roughly the same bug we saw earlier the one he smashed and like i said all the creatures in this movie are voiced by the same person um so it's roughly the same bug, <clears throat> but its form is slightly different in that it looks like it's half typewriter, half bug. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool looking, but um, it demands that he type some words into it. It's like, I'll dictate, you You type the words. And it, it, uh, it gets kind of pushy, man. <laughs> like, like, this bug knows what it wants. 
um because he starts like gingerly just kind of like poking the keys on its face it's like don't (laughs) it's like you got more than that (laughs) it's like jam it in there yeah commit to it (laughs) yeah um and it also it like taunts him it says it says or basically it says uh, homosexuality is the best overall cover an agent ever had so it's like kind of like nudging him towards towards whatever urges he's feeling I guess um, because I guess this bug is somehow representative of a part of his consciousness and it's it's urging him to pursue that because it wants reports on whatever it is he gets up to um, whatever he pursues and he it's i think it's noteworthy that um while it's telling him this he actually leaves the room like he just straight up leaves um but it keeps talking like this the scene doesn't cut away it finishes its sentence like after he's left but uh, you can assume that the bug is kind of representative of a part of him so it doesn't matter if he's in the room to hear it or not he definitely got it um and then we uh we cut to a diner and uh hans is kind of getting antsy about Benway for some reason and Bill sees a woman who it it's supposed to be a different woman but it's totally the same woman uh, Mm -hmm. Joan the woman that he shot but it's definitely played by the same actress but she's dead how could she be here Um, so this could be a case of him like transposing her image onto someone who's totally not her I don't know but it never even comes up like he doesn't even notice we notice it as the viewers but he doesn't even really mention it um yeah i could see like if he started writing and this is happening after he uh after he shot his wife um maybe he's just projecting and seeing her in places that he's going also i mean he could have been going here before he shot his wife and he might have met her there even so this could actually be her before this all happened could be. Uh, I mean, that speaks to the nature of the source text, where um, space and time kind of come and go as they please um, from chapter to chapter. <laughs> Kyle just did a mind-blown hand gesture. Generic. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is um, Tom and Joan Frost, and I think he's supposed to represent another writer as well. I don't remember. I think it was kind of just mentioned in passing. Like, I can't remember. Not in the film. i Remember reading, some, reading something, I think he might be a writer, but I can't say for sure. But yeah, uh, Tom is played by Ian Holm, and then again, Joan Frost is played by his uh, Marilyn Dean, Judy Davis. Um, I liked her in this movie, too. I'm kind of glad that she came back into the film after being shot in the head. Yeah, and uh, she, she brings a little something to it. For some reason, like, uh, it's funny, before I even saw her in this movie, like, I was like, kind of thinking of myself like piecing the the film together in my head because i like i said i've seen it before i was like is is alice Creech in this movie it's a it's a canadian film and she does weird shit and i was like she looks like her but no (laughs) like totally could have played it though (laughs) i want to be in this diner so bad smoking and drinking coffee working on something like school work i don't even care but yeah i got a real like the shot of them sitting at the table like just smoking and like sitting there doing stuff i'm like ah, oh, that looks fantastic i really want that i mean who the fuck doesn't want to be smoking and eating french toast while leading a purpose-driven life that sounds like everyone's dream mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> well except maybe a diabetic but <laughs> <laughs> no actually the diabetic would really like that they just can't <laughs> um but yeah uh we uh 
he he gets introduced to them by Kiki, and it needs to be said that Kiki, as you said, is is based on a real person, mm-hmm. um, and Kiki serves as a bridge to many many of his exploits mm-hmm. in this movie. He's kind of like the liaison that gets everything. He kind of like lays down the the path for him every like at every turn. Um, so this is the first of many instances where Kiki says, "Oh, you have a thing that you feel you need to do." I can I can facilitate that, and he very easily like puts together a scenario where it's like, oh yeah, there's a party tonight. I can find a way to rope you in too, and he introduces them. What are the boy? What are the guys called? The young men? I think there's, uh, just the boys. The boys, yeah. Um, it's <clears throat> we kind of get the sense that Tom and Joan had a, had a similar relationship that uh, Bill and his wife had, where. Tom's, but but he's got his foot on the gas. Like no no no, he's he's gay and he goes with the young men, and she's kind of a almost an assistant I think uh, to him uh, more than just a wife. Yeah, um, it's as far as I understand, like she masquerades as a writer, but she's more like an appendage of some sort, mm-hmm. like an editor maybe. Um, but yeah, she upon first meeting Bill, and we get this like this really nice tracking shot through the streets at night where um, Ian Holm and, and uh, Joan and Bill, they're all walking together, and all the boys are kind of, like, gallivanting along behind them. Uh, pretty much the first line of dialogue exchanged between the new Joan and Bill is that she, like, laughs at him and says, like, oh, you, you came to Interzone for the boys, too, huh? Mm. And he's like, no, but that's interesting that you'd assume that. But uh, Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, she's very quickly like swept off to the side in favor of Ian Holm taking Bill by the arm and the two of them walk and like I said this is a long tracking shot and uh Ian Holm offers to swap typewriters with him um I don't know if that if there's an innuendo there but um um, he also asks about Joan's murder um, about the shooting that happened in New York and of course bill's like how the fuck do you know about that and uh tom's reaction is a line that i think speaks to some of the greater themes in the movie and is probably like referencing the quotes that we had at the top of the film that that, uh there are no accidents Mm -hmm. um as in like everything piles on top of everything and you know maybe there's some measure of fate involved in in everything that plays out and also i told you this off air that um, William S. Burroughs was really big on, uh, uh, <laughs> to quote Raiders, he's, he's obsessed with the occult. <laughs> and, uh, William S. Burroughs was really into like magic and like magical realism and, and the occult. Uh, so, you know, fantastical concepts like actual literal belief in fate may, may not have been beyond him. That may have been something he was actually into, but, um, then we have a, this really interesting bit where uh, Ian Holm kind of like tells him to like watch my lips move but don't pay attention to the words that I'm saying pay attention to the like the hidden meaning behind them and it's this really surreal moment where we watch Ian Holm deliver lines of dialogue and the audio doesn't match his lip movements at all yeah. uh, so obviously like the public conversation they're having like it's something innocuous or whatever but what he's telling him is something completely different and it relates to him confessing to uh, slowly murdering his own wife uh, the new Joan um, through like like a, 
death by a thousand cuts just like mm-hmm. little slights here and there and like being inattentive and things like that um and then yeah uh we jump in space and time to a beach at night <laughs> and uh bill is asleep by a wrecked boat uh under a dock as far as i can tell and we meet uh mr julian sands quick question i don't know if you want to leave this in um but i had, I had a question I never thought about the relationship of um, men at this time, uh, men who may not have put the put their finger on it that they were they were gay. But yeah. what was the relationship like with uh, the women that they'd marry? Like, I'd be curious to kind of read about that. Like, I mean, all signs point to even a gay man probably has more rights than a woman at that <laughs> point in time. So I would imagine being in a a loveless marriage of that nature probably be really rough from a psychological standpoint and that's, you probably wouldn't have an easy way out either that's what i was thinking too and i'm like what how does that affect how like he quote-unquote accidentally killed his wife and then you have another character who seems to be in a similar situation where he's slowly killing his wife so i don't know i, I just it kind of made me think i'm like there's no, probably it's it's him acknowledging that where it's mm. like i'm i'm causing her harm in some capacity maybe not intentionally but he's he's aware of it yeah i'd be curious to i don't know maybe there's some books out there i don't know i would imagine i mean it's the kind of thing that maybe wasn't written about back then um but as in a, retrospect i'm sure there's a lot of studies about it hmm. anyway you don't have to leave that in i was just kind of no i'm gonna leave the, it. <laughs> their, their conversation made me just made me think about it um but yeah julian sands who was I don't know how big of a thing he was overseas, but I want to say in the early '90s, like he he was he was on his way up. He was doing some stuff. He, he looked he, when I see him. I'm like, that's the guy from Braveheart, not Braveheart, or Dragonheart. I'm like, no, that's not him. Uh, who, who's that? I know it's not him, but wh- who's that actor? You know who I'm thinking of. I know who you're thinking about. Um, he's got that goofy nose. <laughs> yeah, she, um, he definitely's got a villainous way about himself. Yeah, Julian Sands is a good villain. Sometimes a bad villain though, because he's been in some shit. Uh, yeah, I can he was in it. he was in Jackie Chan's The Medallion. Mm. Um, yeah, Julian Sands doesn't know kung fu. Yeah, <laughs> be in the not white even guy. that. Not even that hokey pokey kung fu like Jackie Chan, but um, his being stunt the, double maybe. Being the white dude in a martial arts film, I mean that's hey, Julian. You take, you take that back. Some <laughs> some of the best. I, I swear to I swear up and down, man. The best fights in Hong Kong movies are when Chinese people get to beat up the white guy. <laughs> okay. okay. I'm telling you, they bring a little, they put a little extra stank on their I, moves. I thought you were going to say something <laughs> racy, like, all the best martial art movies are the ones with white guys in them. Damn, I did not see you <laughs> taking po- that stance. End podcast. <laughs> Overdone. Damn, I, I, I misunderstood you completely. <laughs> no, but seriously, some of the best pairings in Hong Kong history are between white guys and chinese guys okay um, and i want to say it it's like maybe because maybe because they go a little harder or something your nose is bleeding you calm down <laughs> man you brought up godzilla 98 and martial arts <laughs> movies in the same month you're pushing it kyle i haven't even mentioned lars von trier in this episode <clears throat> oh, uh, i've been waiting for it I, i've got like a series of check marks here <laughs> this is trier alley but um no, I'm not going to mention that. Yeah, Cloquet. How do you say his first name? Because it's not at all how it's pronounced. Fuck. 
I don't know. Yeah. Um, Julian Cloquet. Sands plays a character named Eve. Eve Cloquet. Um, um, yeah, uh, Julian Sands, uh, I mostly just know him as playing the professor in Arachnophobia. Um, there's that Warlock movie that I've I've always been fascinated by, but I've never seen it. I just remember the VHS cover back in the day. Mm. And I want to say he was in that. Okay. Um, that he, may have been the beginning and the end of Julian Sands. <laughs> he does carry himself like he has a whole bunch of other movies that you need to see, but I don't know any of them. Um, I know him as Greco from Ocean's 13, which I can't wait for you to watch. You're really going to have a great time with that. That's an Al, that's a contemporary Al Pacino performance that I can sit through. Um, but yeah, uh, Julian Sands introduces himself, and he wakes up Bill, who is coughing and sloppy on this beach. Um, it needs to be said, Mr. Sands um, is dressed from head to toe in white. Uh, he's very charming, very erudite. Um, and he invites uh, Peter Weller into his home. He's like, you want, you want to get some breakfast? He's like, I mean, I'm asleep on a fucking beach, of course. <laughs> so I'm not going to say no to fucking Denny's. <laughs> I'm sorry. Real quick, I, I have to tell you this. Um, <laughs> he His number, his best film, it looks like, his number one thing on IMDb is A Room with a View, which I've never heard of, but I swear to God, I could barely read the plot summary for this movie without falling asleep. Can I read it to you real quick? Absolutely. Bring it. In a Florence something circa 1900 with English guests. George Emerson and his dad offer their rooms with views to Lucy Honeychurch and her chaperone Charlotte Bartlett. Lucy and George get acquainted, but Lucy returns to England. George and Lucy meet again, but now she's engaged. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a market well, for he, that. He, yeah, absolutely. Jeez. Um, but it does he, have uh, Denholm Elliott in it. Oh, nice. I like him. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody does. He's so sweet. <laughs> There's a he has a lot of like small roles in in bigger movies. Like I uh, he's in he's apparently in Leaving Las Vegas, which I haven't seen. It's kind of a big deal. Killing um, Fields. The one that jumps out at me though that I have not seen, but I I get the sense you in particular might like better than me, but it's something that's been known to me but I haven't seen is a uh, Gothic um, it's a Ken Russell film. Mm, I'm um, not familiar. He did uh, Altered States, and it's a oh. it's a it's like a fictional retelling about um, the origin of uh, was it? It's like Mary Shelley and Lord Byron uh, gang together one crazy night and like dreaming up the the stories for like all the original Gothic horror novels. Ooh, this looks like fun. Like I said, I think it's more up your alley than mine, yeah. um, but you may want to put that on your list. Yeah, it's on there now. <laughs> anyway, uh, breakfast. Uh, so I digress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, that's your line, not mine. Uh, <laughs> Julian Sands opened strong again um, with, I've seen you around, but I had no idea you were queer. Mm, and uh, okay. Bill responds with uh, a very long story. Um, and he yeah. has a couple of monologues in this movie that are all excellent. I, yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. I'm like, I really like this little monologue he has. Uh, to sum it up, basically, um, using his terms, uh, it was a, a drag queen that he had talked to. And what what is the word he says um, about his nature? Uh, uh, I, I, didn't a, write, I didn't write down the words exactly, but um, the general a, sense I got from it is that 
in, in in being approached about his nature and being and having drag being surrounded by drag queens to represent that side of himself the it he it came across as like crass and he he had a disdain for it where he's like that's if that's me i don't want to be that i guess mm-hmm. um but, and yeah it, he was he kind of rejected that part of himself on the grounds that it it felt wrong or or somehow like too loud or too big and she said you have a um an obligation as a homosexual to wear it but he had a really good line about um about coming to that realization i don't know i really like the way he delivered it there's too many good lines in that monologue um which i want to say is probably borrowed from one of one of Burroughs' texts, um, as mm. far as I can tell, it's not from Naked Lunch, but um, he has this really graphic description of what ultimately became of the drag queen. Um, it's like a really violent episode that I won't go into too much detail about, but uh, the word schlepping is used. Yeah. <laughs> I found it. He goes, queer, a curse, been in our family for generations. I am butchering his delivery, by the way. Mm-hmm. Elise have always been perverts. I shall never forget the unspeakable horror that froze the lymph in my glands when the baneful words seared my reeling brain. I was a homosexual. I'm like, damn, that was quite a hop, skip, and jump to get there, but yeah, I, I like this particular... Uh, Bobo was the name of her. her uh, name. Yeah, of, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which is my dog's name. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. Oh, uh, that's perfect that you uh, you actually wrote that down because um, the next scene begins with a shot of his typewriter, or um, I think he has the other typewriter at this point. Um, but uh, we get a shot of his writing, and I think this is really uh, telling. Um, this is kind of a good visual storytelling moment where he just said all that, and then verbatim. That, that last bit that you had said, the baneful something or other disdain mm-hmm. um, for being queer. Um, the text is, like reads verbatim with some typos and misspellings um, exactly what he said to Julian Sands during their breakfast together, minus the confession part, mm-hmm. minus the reference to himself. So even in writing, he's still, he's still not there. Hasn't quite um, gotten there. Yeah, um, but we get a repeat of him... Uh, acting out what his wife had done earlier with him uh, breathing on a centipede in his shower and it, it falls off the wall so, and he he looks pretty fucked up here like he's on all manner of drugs um and then yeah uh, we cut back to uh the art like the artist slash writer hangout like the cafe where everybody types mm-hmm. and <laughs> i noticed that the camel noises um are straight out of doom the computer oh, really? game. <laughs> oh wow! Except I want to say this movie predates Doom, which means uh, Doom referenced the same sound library that these guys did. Uh, so Doom stole from Naked Lunch. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, basically, um, Ian Holm and Joan they kind of like tease Bill a little bit about him having been seen with Eve. Uh, who apparently has a reputation around town, and they they tell him like straight up, it's like if you want to sleep with him, pretty sure you can. He's not that hard. Yeah, uh, I, like, <laughs> I like that. That was pretty good. Like, yeah, but uh, this what's also interesting about this exchange though is it points to the fact that there are a lot of things that both he uh, as a person and we the viewer are not privy to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of episodes that come and go without anyone being aware except for the people around him. So apparently. How, how he got to that beach and uh, apparently there's an 
additional story because Eve, the reason why Eve picked him up that night is because he made a spectacle of himself or something, but we didn't see any of that because he doesn't remember it. I could see him blacking out and part of his, uh, I guess, him struggling with homosexuality could come up in conversation or in the way he acts that people who are around him might be picking up on that. Like, oh, okay, maybe maybe there's something here and he just doesn't remember because he went too hard one night. Yeah, it's not the only time it happens in this movie where there's people telling him about what he got up to. <laughs> um, uh, but he learns here that Hans, uh, the guy who was dealing the black meat powder, was deported. And uh, Ian Holm casually offers him a new drug. Mm-hmm. And you had some, you had something you wanted to say about that new drug? I think it's hash. I think it's just hashish, marijuana, some kind of THC. He's putting it on his skin, though. I don't think how you're taking it in is necessarily important for the rest of them. Because there's one drug in here. I think he starts doing cocaine at one point, And that's not how you do cocaine, uh, how he's doing it. So I I think it's supposed to be marijuana. Um, But I wanted to mention um, the significance of the typewriters. Because that's going to be very important moving forward. Um, And the drug comes with the typewriter. This is where um, Tom says, you should try my typewriter. Do they switch typewriters, or does he just give him his typewriter to use? He just gives him his typewriter. That's he's like a Martinelli, because he's got um, another typewriter that he can write in Arabic, which goes the opposite way. Um, I, that, that's how I can tell the difference. Also, the letters are different, but um, he gives him uh, that typewriter. And I was mentioning to off mentioning to you off air. I wasn't sure what the significance of um, the typewriters is, and maybe it is the compulsion to write because. In Quills, um, Jeffrey Rush playing Marquis de Sade um, is constantly just trying to write. He's just writing, 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 writing. And to the point where they take away, like to punish him, they take away his uh, writing utensils. And he's like, they're like smuggling like pen and paper so he can get more of his, uh, I guess he was writing these in prison, like these books he was writing. And they were, they were smutty, were they not? but he ends up writing with his own feces at one point because they don't let him write at all. And I, I thought maybe the ang- like the compulsion to write was part of dealing with anxiety. And I don't see how it really connects with um, Tom, Ian Holmes' character. Hmm. It's, I didn't put much stock in him as a character. He's okay. more of a plot device in some ways. Okay. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but... The That's fact fair. that he, the <laughs> fact that he's constantly um, trying to push something on, onto Bill, maybe that suggests like an ele- like a toxic element in his life or something like a literally a pusher. I think he does represent more of a toxic. Um, I think they even mentioned him as a drug dealer at one point, uh, in one yeah. of the descriptions I read. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And also, he's kind of like a dark reflection of Bill in some ways. Man, Ian Holm always plays a dark character. Except I think in in except for the day after tomorrow, like even in the like even in Lord of the Rings, like he has a moment that's pretty dark. But hey, the fifth the fifth element, he's a literal like saint. Oh, that's right. He is a sweetheart. <laughs> he is a sweetheart in that. Yeah, he's great in that. He's very warm. He's a very he's a magnificently talented actor. I'm sad mm-hmm. he's gone. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, we we cut to a, like an evening typing session, or at least an attempted one. Oh, God, it, does, it doesn't go anywhere, but. 
Um, we do get to see what he typed on, on his dual typewriters, and uh, it reads, uh, Dear Martin, please help me. I've got to get out of inner zone. I'm dying of loneliness. And I noticed that more misspellings. I, I think my dad beat it into my head that like misspellings are not forgivable. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start misspelling um, my text messages yeah, more than I already then, uh, do. Uh, the other message reads, Dear Hank, I seem to be addicted to something that doesn't really exist. I've embarked upon withdrawal and I don't know what's going to come of it. So he's, he typed like half messages to his friends back home about his anxieties that you were talking about. Like he's got a lot of problems floating around his head. And uh, this is the first that you, I, or anyone else watching this movie could have gotten any inkling of that, that he was feeling these things, Um, which again, speaks to Peter Weller's performance. It's like, there's, there's a lot going on underneath Robocop's face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you may not be aware of it, but you're compelled to learn more. But yeah, he's shivering in bed. Uh, like he's like he said in his text, he's undergoing some form of with- withdrawals, and he awakes to the sounds of screaming. All right, Kyle. Yeah. You want to yeah. take this one? <laughs> so this was... The, so right up until this point, the, the movie's just kind of had like a low pulse. Like it's just been kind of just going through the scenes. I've actually just been enjoying the set pieces more. Like just the sets. I really love the diner. Like you mentioned the lighting. Um, like I said, this is, a, this is a movie I'd want to live in. This is one of those movies. Like Sleepy Hollow. I'd love to live in Sleepy Hollow. Something about that movie. Um... But he is in the other room when I, you just hear a woman screaming in agony. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? He goes into the other room and his, uh, what's the name of his, uh, his typewriter again? Clark Nova. Clark Nova is eating the other typewriter alive. <laughs> I don't know what the significance of that is, but... It's really, I mean, it's, Google it. Like, just look at the (laughs) video of it, because it is a half-bug typewriter eating another half-bug typewriter, talking out of its asshole. On its back. Um, On its back. um, Yes, Google it, uh, if you can stomach that. But um, uh, in addition to the cinematography, um, by the way, Peter Sushitsky? Um, also was the cinematographer on Empire Strikes Back. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 He's all just, right. Just watched <laughs> that on VHS the other night. Ooh, Finally got back nice. around to it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Google it. Uh, words can't quite describe the spectacle of a bug typewriter eating another bug typewriter. Um, but another kudo I want to throw out there, and I can't be bothered to look up who did it but uh the sound design holy shit uh the sound mm-hmm. effects for all the bug typewriter action which there's very little in this movie but uh the sounds the application of the sounds is brilliant where it's like i i believe entirely that that's what that would sound like and it's horrible and it's violent and it definitely sounds like some sort of like chitin chitinous um metallic beast tearing into another one of similar construction i I allow myself one cigarette a year now just one and i have to find the right time watching this a second time if i was if i was to go back and watch this a second time i think i might use it for this movie just just (laughs) to sit there and and enjoy a cigarette and watch this movie i mean it seems right to me like 
I mean, just have Peter Weller's expression just kind of like casually just take a drag every once in a while. I feel like this movie um, deserves it. Yeah, and this scene in particular, because I love that uh, Peter Weller's reaction to watching this unfold. And this is grisly. It's very yeah. violent, by the way. Um, a lot but, of gore. But it's kind of like watching an 80s horror movie where you have... It's, it's almost like watching Dead Alive, where it's like, it's grisly, but it's just like, I'm not taking this too seriously. This is the well, other and thing. And it's just so out of left field and bizarre because and again the the sound design here it's like you have the noise of everybody knows what like an old-timey telephone or a typewriter sounds like when you bang on it it's that mm. noise mixed with like chittering noises and flesh tearing yeah and, oh yeah and the whole and the the typewriter clark nova is talking the whole time and he sounds pretty jolly by the way yeah <laughs> it's a lot but I love that Peter Weller's reaction is just, just kind of calm. Well, not actually, this is him a little bit freaked out. And he's just like, holy shit, that machine doesn't belong to me. It's Tom Frost's. <laughs> so, like, his reaction is like, oh, man, how am I going to return that now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the typewriter does get destroyed, and it becomes a pro- like a little bit of a problem moving forward. So I'm trying to think of, like, was he in real life maybe destroying the property like going in like a like a rage and like destroying other people's property maybe i don't understand given the nature of those messages he typed to his friends he's not in a happy place yeah and i would not be he's shot a person in the fucking face before he does have some destructive instincts yeah okay (laughs) so yeah maybe he borrowed someone maybe he borrowed someone's nintendo and threw it out the window (laughs) asshole (laughs) um yeah, uh, the typewriter. That was a gift. <laughs> the typewriter Clark Nova demands while it's tearing into the Martinelli that he uh, investigate Joan, the new Joan, and type a report about her. Um, so this sequence Bill gets, is awesome. Bill gets yeah. to fucking work. Uh, yeah. He he goes to visit Joan alone in her home, which is a lovely home. Like Kyle said, the sets in this movie are mm-hmm. quite nice. Um, this one in particular is it's meant to be like upscale as opposed to like his kind of quaint dwelling it looked i I wasn't sure so when he's having lunch with cloquet it looks like they're overlooking central park did you notice that i don't know that view well enough but it's definitely overlooking like a park of some sort i've seen uh like different movies where new york is kind of seen out on the skyline which um yeah try to get one of those apartments now i think those are worth several million dollars probably perhaps (laughs) Um, yeah but it's at a low. It's 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 much lower than you generally see it, and it and it looks like wintertime outside. So that I that thought that was kind of strange because I'm like, if he's in Tangier, I believe, um, it looks like he's in New York now. But he says when he comes to meet Joan, he's like, there's a there's a restaurant in New York that looks exactly like this, and I thought he was referring to having lunch with Cloquet. What well, man, you're peeling back some layers I hadn't considered. Um. Again, calling back to that um, cut-up uh, style of writing, um, perhaps that those two scenes that in the film, in a, mm-hmm. in a linear construction, uh, play back-to-back with each other. We see Bill asleep on a beach. We cut to breakfast, presumably the next day. Maybe that breakfast was a long time ago when they maybe first that, met or something. That beach wasn't in Tangier. And yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, so maybe this was a reunion and not a first encounter. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Thanks for bringing that up. I need um, to watch this a second time. It, this is the second time kind of movie. 
Well, you own it, so you can do that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready to jump back in, though. That's the thing. Well, no, put some miles between it. <laughs> God, don't be a psycho. <laughs> I can't wait to get to swords, swords next month. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, he visits her, and uh, we see there is a lovely Arabic typewriter. It looks like an antique. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I was super rich, this is something I would have in my home. Just I kind of like, just talk. like, I wish, I wish I was a writer so I could just like write on a typewriter i feel like it'd be a lot of fun yeah you'd feel like king shit man (laughs) definitely have to smoke for that (laughs) it's like i type on this (laughs) what do you do (laughs) um but yeah uh he immediately gets her high on the uh the jarred substance uh that ian holm had given him uh and he it takes some prodding but he convinces her to type on her husband's typewriter and uh we jump ahead presumably a an hour or a few minutes in time and uh he is smoking while hanging out over her shoulder while she types and uh he's demanding that she type some erotic stuff mm-hmm. and it, they're clearly both high um and they're having a good time um and yeah he's he's kind of like looming over her while she's typing but she's enjoying herself and this sequence uh i mean you thought the the typewriter cannibalism was was crazy you ain't seen crazy. <laughs> this was even yeah. more. So I don't. I my notes go Arabic typewriter writing erotic. What the fuck? Wow, that's the whole scene. That's this whole sequence. Uh, I, I don't mean, even yeah, know. That's the bare bones of it. <laughs> I don't even know how to to jump into this. So as they're typing, really, um, the typewriter begins to so. We mentioned that the typewriter looks like a bug with an anus. So this typewriter is taking on a bit of a different kind of look. Um, and it starts to grow. It looks like it's, it's actually growing a vagina. And then <laughs> a, a Prometheus <laughs> uh, <laughs> eel thing. From a baby's a, arm holding an apple. Kind baby's of. arm holding an apple comes out. And this thing is phallic. Uh, yeah, yeah, but but I don't know if it was due to censorship. I, somehow I doubt that. I feel like Cronenberg had free reign to do whatever the fuck he wanted for this movie. Um, I this, don't. This is his Ed Wood, I guess. <laughs> but but um, yeah. Uh, the the key portion of it like unfolds, and this is a really complex prop. It's like again, it's bizarre, but it's like the craftsmanship. Yeah. In this typewriter vagina beast is remarkable um but yeah the 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 keys unfold and yeah it turns into like a sideways vagina um and then the back yeah it's definitely baby's arm holding an apple but it's like turned inside out yeah because it because it doesn't have a penis you know hmm? it's not a penis it's just phallic yeah it's just phallic but it looks like a penis if you were to like push it inside out so so all the surface details are like no, they're not there yeah so it doesn't it doesn't have any texture to it it's just <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh they get to business on the floor and uh the typewriter gets antsy and decides to join in and yeah. it uh it writhes on their back and uh we get this moment where it transforms fully from like a typewriter mixed with sexual organs to just like straight up sexual organs mm-hmm. um, so it's like pink and everything but there is like one shot in there where we get to see it like halfway between both like um, and yeah it's just kind of like flipping and flopping on their back trying to join the fun and uh 
yeah it looks like an erotic face hugger which is yeah. already kind of erotic to begin with <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um from certain angles anyway and then uh yeah a uh a woman with a riding crop comes in, and I yeah. was calling this uh, this lady Frau. Frau, exactly. Frau, yeah. <laughs> Big Gates Essenen, yeah. Yeah, uh, as in Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. She's very much Frau. Uh, yeah, she comes in, and she's just like, what are you doing? Like, we have no idea who this character is. Uh, she just comes out of nowhere. I assume she was a housekeeper, but I'm like, why would she be talking to her like this? But she basically scolds Joan and tells her to, like, put your hair up. You know how you feel after you do stuff like this. And uh, she goes to f- get the typewriter and what whatever it's become. And it's like <laughs> running away. In the, it's kind of funny. It's like running away in the apartment trying to get away from her. And I guess she chucks it off the off the building and yeah. destroys it. The, the sequence when she's shooing this thing, and it is a thing, yes. <laughs> uh, it takes a while. Like, it's not brief. It, it takes like a good solid minute. And she's like chastising it and shouting at it and like poking at it with her riding crop and it looks almost like a a, a zolotl. Um It's it's like a kind of salamander. It's like an amphibian mm. with it, it's. They're in Mexico uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but it doesn't have a face. And it yeah, it falls down to the street uh, where Ian Holm just happens to be walking up, and it is fully a typewriter when it hits the street. So it's no longer a creature. It's pure, just like metal and plastic and whatnot. Um, and he's not too happy about that because that mm-hmm. thing looked expensive. It looked expensive, yeah. Yeah, so he, he runs upstairs and he's like, oh, what the fuck going on here? And uh, he blames it. Uh, somehow the blame gets pushed onto Frau. Um, the character's name, I think, is Fadella. She's yeah. Im- she's important, but not. Not. Roy Scheider is important, but not. Exactly. Um, and somehow the conversation gets spun around where uh, Ian Holm has a dude with him who I think is like his partner of some sort. Yes, I think he's got a, a main squeeze. Yeah, it's a very tall guy who's always concerned about Ian Holm's well-being. Yeah. Um, and uh, he goes digging around the plants unprompted, by the way. <laughs> and he finds like a little bag containing... Um, like hairs and and nail clippings from Joan, and somehow the conversation spirals off into oh Frau is like keeping tabs on you by putting a hex on the house. It's like what uh-huh. <laughs> does that have anything to do with anything? But long story short, uh, Tom he wants his typewriter back, and uh, Bill can't exactly get him that, but he's gonna pretend that he can. So he uh, he goes for a stroll through the dry dry goods market that we saw earlier but as far as i understand this is our first time back there in in the present yeah um and joan comes with him and we see uh fadella um frau uh, butchering a giant centipede and again this this plays to time being very fluid in this movie because the the arrangement of scenes here to have her introduction in the film be so sudden and bizarre and then have a much more proper introduction happened here where she's in the market chopping up a centipede and like have her actually be introduced to both the audience and bill like having that be out of sequence seems very intentional um anyway we get this bizarre scene where joan is called over to sit with, with fadella uh, to give penance of some sort yeah as she puts it and yeah she just kind of smooches fadella and just like 
pops up a seat next to her and apparently she's just like a, a slave to her in some capacity um but yeah bill goes home and he pours himself a drink and he sits down to write about the black meat and i noticed that his he was inspired in this moment like he moved very briskly he like immediately like pulled up a chair and like poured himself some liquor he was ready to write yeah you've had uh, moments like that like i've had oh, moments where yeah, yeah. more Absolutely. was with me it was with guitar i'm like oh man i've got like like i've stuck on something i'm like oh i know exactly what would go perfect for that and just gotta run over there to get it real quick oh yeah i mean writers in particular it seems like uh liquor <laughs> liquor liquor and writing like some somehow th- i think a lot of it is just a habit almost where it's like it's like your mise en place where if if you don't have it like your workspace set up like if that if that glass wasn't there it wouldn't feel right or something or if that or if your mm, your yeah. brand of cigarettes wasn't there it wouldn't be right but yeah it seems like like alcohol stimulates a part of part of you that that brings it out a little bit more alcohol it, it definitely uh, helps with creativity i i think that's what a lot of it comes from it, it just helps with the creative process um i don't feel like alcohol would help you with the creative process um I would like to see what the cre- like what marijuana would do for your creative process. It'd be interesting. A lot of a lot of people tell me that. <laughs> it's really a lot like, of people. <laughs> man, like you, you 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 live alone. You you've got a lot of video games and a lot of cool Blu-rays, and you like to write. I'm like, man, how does he not smoking weed <laughs> <laughs> all the time? He lives in <laughs> Seattle, <laughs> where it's legal and readily available. <laughs> Dude, we. Uh, I mean, just say we we got some pot here, which it feels like fucking high school. Like I feel so paranoid driving with it, and I forget. I'm like in Washington, it's not even a thing. And I've I've gone back to that. It really feels awkward. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he he uses some of the the drug that Ian Holm had given him, and of course, uh, a the bug appears. So Clark Nova manifests again, and it, it tells him all about. Fidela, who is a Jones controller, much like he's his controller, I guess. Um, and it was organized that she, um, he's talking about uh, uh, original recipe Joan, not not new Joan. <laughs> so, so, so he makes it known that uh, Joan was organized to be sent to marry him. Um, and he also tells him that, oh, by the way, Joan was a centipede. I don't know how many times he slept with Joan, but food for gross. yeah <laughs> pretty gross um, and then uh ian holm busts in and he has a gun and he is very insistent i want my fucking typewriter yeah um and uh in exchange i uh, i think this is where he unfortunately discovers that his typewriter has been eaten and mangled mm-hmm. um so in a, he takes clark nova hostage in exchange so they uh, clark nova makes a, a run for it which is really funny to watch the little bug puppet try to run mm-hmm. like skitter across the floor this is where the sound design was really cool because when he plops down from the table onto the floor it makes it makes the sound it should make mm-hmm. i can't describe it but it's like yeah that's what that or whatever the fuck it is should sound like one of my favorites is men in black when the edgar bug she's like and your skin's hanging off your bones he's like oh yeah and he he pulls it back I'm like oh the sound design and that's perfect yeah is that, is that better? Better? Oh, i love that yeah. part no that that's that's him changing his voice in just the right way maybe mm-hmm. had some help from the guys in the booth but uh, either way it well, works the sound of his skin being pulled back too yeah <laughs> that's what i really liked uh, i'd like to revisit that i've been re-watching a lot of 90s uh 
blockbusters and stuff lately. I saw that a f- about a year ago. I think I rewatched it about a year ago. I really still enjoy it. Oh, it's great. Two and three, not so much. Three is fun. Three is not as bad as you would think, though. I really like three. Three is a lot of fun. Yeah, no, uh, Josh Brolin's great in it. It could have been so much worse. Could have been so much worse. So much worse. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they bag up Clark Nova and take him hostage. And uh, yeah, we we go back to sleep on the beach again. Yeah. Um, Again, this now you have me thinking in this fashion like maybe this is the same night who knows i think um, this is i think this is this the night that he shot his um shot his wife perhaps um yeah him you could be beach. right because that's he did just storm off and uh, also um when uh he meets kiki in the bar for the first time i want to say he had like stubble on his face mm-hmm. so that would not be immediately after he shot his wife yeah um, his yeah, they meet him on the beach, and they're like, "How's it going, Bill?" And it, um, they go for. He's like, "Yeah, what?" He says something is in the bag, or like, "What's in the bag?" It's like, "Oh, it's my typewriter." And they look in, and it looks like a lot of different drugs. It's uh, all the drugs. And by the way, Kyle's referring to um, Martin and Hank. Yes, uh, his Martin writer and Hank. friends somehow appeared in Interzone. So this is not in New York. Well, this is the beach. I'm not sure if this is interzone, but it could be. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Because the beach, it's not really clear where the beach is. It just exactly. said the beach. It's, a, it's entirely just an island unto itself. We don't see how, it, how that location connects to the others. Um, yeah, and they, they end up, uh, they're like, kind of almost give, them, give each other like a look. Like, yeah, he's really strung out. And they go back to his apartment. And this was, I, I like this, this uh, scene. Um, go ahead. I know you want to talk about it. It's a, it's kind of sweet actually like it it feels like two people that really legitimately care for him um from what i can gather from the photographs these three were actually really tight i think these three were actually really good friends i mean as far as i understand they're all thought of in the same like in the same line of thinking like the Mm -hmm. the beat writers it's like those three these guys (laughs) um so yeah it wouldn't surprise me if they were all intimately intertwined with each other's lives um, but yeah, these two like really care about him, and there's like a sweet atmosphere to this particular scene. It almost feels like roommates at college or something, in the middle of this really bizarre movie. But um, we see that they have stacks of paper, like met multiple stacks of paper, like laid out on the floor, and they start telling him about writing that he's been doing that he's not aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's writing. It's basically like what we saw him starting to do earlier in the movie, but apparently he's been blacking out or forgetting about it. Um, but yeah, they're asking him about this book he, he's been referring to as Naked Lunch, and he has no memory of that. He's like, uh, I wrote a book called called Naked Lunch? That's cool. Um, but yeah, he's apparently been actually mailing out these pages to both of them, um, like, individually. Um and I thought this was really neat because, like, just from a visual standpoint, this literally is the cut-up method of, of William S. Burroughs' writing method. This is him laying out the pages and reassembling them arbitrarily. Um, so it's, like, almost a, a way of explaining his, his writing method in the fiction of the film. Um, but anyway, after this little, like, exploration of his, his writing method... Um, he shares the last of his black meat supply with them, so the last of his black powder. Um, then they all walk together to the bus station, which I think it's kind of interesting that we're 
man, Kyle, you really kind of kicked the door open. Like, we're going to a bus station from Interzone to New York. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That doesn't work. (laughs) Where are we? (laughs) And I think this is more symbolic. I think this is where he's actually, like, he's leaving to go do something else. And I think this is where I kind of pieced it together. I'm like, oh, I think this is supposed to be Jack Kerouac here. Because he says something about isolation or something like that. Because I think Jack Kerouac went off into the wilderness for a while to, to just kind of get away from everything. I don't I don't remember. Or he just went off well, the radar for well, a while. He did he did the on the road was like his big one. Um you might be thinking of Thoreau who like There we go. Yeah. He I, he wandered off into the wilderness and kind of put some distance between him and civilization. But maybe that's what I'm thinking. Um of. what what he uh, talks about here is um yeah, you know, he it's a, like a casual nod where he's he, we're all saying goodbye and stuff and the character who is symbolic of Kerouac is like yeah, I'd stick around but my writing's kind of like based in American affairs <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> wink wink um, and uh, Bill kind of like pulls him close and he's like America is not a young land <laughs> he, he like delivers this big monologue about America being this dark land that was occupied long before the white man and the natives and it's 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 a ancient continent which uh is actually directly from naked lunch the text um i remember that being like a paragraph in there but just like peter weller in that grave tone america is not a young land it's like i'm listening sir yeah but um got my attention (laughs) but uh martin he actually asks him to stay it's like you can stay if you want which is interesting because it you know this is not a character who asks for much from people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he actually refuses. And he says, you stay and finish your book, but come back to us. Like, come back to us. Like, we'll, we'll all be together again. But finish your fucking book. <laughs> um, and immediately after this, we cut to Bill, like, stumbling down an alleyway. And he is sloppy drunk. Like, he's yeah. ugly drunk. And uh, great acting for Peter Weller here. He's, like, in tears and, like, kind of pitiful like it's really rare to see like a stoic figure like peter weller like have a breakdown like this and it makes it all the more effective Mm -hmm. and then kiki who just has this fucking batman power of teleportation (laughs) right i would not turn my back on kiki he he will he will do the batman bamf on you like you commissioner gordon turns around batman's not there and it's like god damn (laughs) it's like i like working with you kiki but you gotta like stick around sometimes i have more to say like, what if the important shit came at the end? What, what, what if the really important shit I had to say to you came at the end and you left early? What then? But um, Kiki tries to, like, coax out of him, like, what the problem is. And it comes to light that, like, Bill is distraught because he can't go home. And this points to the fact that, well, you know, in real life and in the movie, he did shoot his wife in the face. And mm-hmm. he is in a foreign land right now probably can't go back to where he's from uh so you know what we saw earlier in his his letters that he had typed you know about feeling lonely and unable to connect with people maybe this is him in that place right now um but kiki encourages him to fix his typewriter and we get this very quick and bizarre sequence where he takes the remnants of his clark nova or a typewriter and he throws it into a furnace and then, like, a blacksmith fashions it, or a glass blower or something, like, yeah. fashions it into a molten mugwa head. Um, so, like, that lizard creature that we'd seen earlier. And uh, 
right away he gets to work with the thing now that it's cool and he has it back home and he's typing in in its mouth so he's using its teeth as keys uh-huh. yeah. and he likes it <laughs> like he's he's having a good groove with it and uh yeah we have a we don't have a transition just the next scene happens in in his apartment and the mugwa appears not as a head but as the whole body sitting in his chair and i think it's smoking and uh he he milks its head because uh by the way it has like a, a rooster comb on its head yeah and this description as far as I, I recall is also in the naked lunch text but yeah he milks its head for drugs uh, which he also likes <laughs> and uh yeah the mugwa wants uh him to investigate eve and dr benway I, th- yeah. think, I think <laughs> this is supposed to be cocaine because while he's typing, he is sweating profusely, and he's very alert. Like this is the most alert he's looked. I'm like, I think this might be cocaine. I mean, like you said, he like like I said, he he was pretty he's pretty jazzed about typing on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> he's just he's just really really enamored with this typewriter. But um, he sits on the edge of the bed while the mug was talking to him, and uh, Kiki wakes up behind him. So Kiki stayed the night, and uh. We get a moment where Peter Weller kind of like cradles Kiki in his one arm and he like kisses him on top of the head. And uh, Kiki tells him that he's he's proud. I think the way he phrases it, he's proud to help him be a writer. So it's it's almost like he's a, not a muse, but some sort of conduit through which he's able to, mm-hmm. to channel his writing or something. And like I said, Kiki's like the ultimate facilitator. Like if if he needs something, he gets it for him, or he finds a way to get him to it. Um, but uh, he asks Kiki, uh, he like asks about Eve. He's like, "So this uh, Eve guy, Kiki, do you know anything about him?" And uh, <laughs> we have a fun transition where he references. He's like, "Yeah, I know Eve. He has the most wonderful car." Mm-hmm. Cut to the most wonderful car. <laughs> I'm guessing and it's I, a Rolls Royce or something. I don't know. Yeah, uh, the camera, uh, it raised up like on the crane or whatever uh, too quickly for me to see the logo on the front of the vehicle. But yeah, it's it's a wonderful car um, for people who love cars. Um, and yeah, we have a really long monologue here, but it's a really good one. Um, it's about the man with the asshole that could talk. <laughs> uh, I. I it's too long for me to have uh, taken down all the details, but it's it's a really cool story. <laughs> like it's, it's a just story. filled. With, <laughs> it's just really interesting, really interesting wording, really interesting concept. But it's it's yeah, it's about the man with the asshole that could talk, and it developed teeth at some point and wanted equal rights. It would get drunk, it wouldn't shut up, so the the man would beat it, so he'd punch his own ass, and uh. There's at one point towards the end of the story, he mentions the fact that the asshole could not see. So the man like has some sort of protoplasm form on his face, and it like seals up all the all the orifices and cavities on his face to the point that it's just like blank flesh with eyes, and it's really vivid imagery. Um, and one of the phrases I had to write down was, "There was no more feeling in them than a crab's eye at the end of the stock." It's like that's. That's interesting writing. <laughs> I don't know if it's good, but it's certainly interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you want to go over what goes down at Eve's house? I don't even know what the hell happens at Bouquet's <laughs> house. But he's got some parrots. He has a very cluttered, very, very, very cluttered house. Uh, too much stuff. Um, yeah, Kiki's kind of playing with the parrot and feeding it. And it's very apparent that Cloquet is wanting to do things with Kiki. 
Um, Kiki's not really feeling it. He's kind of like a cat. Like he's just like, no, man, I'm not. I'm not in the mood right now. And um, I guess what um, what kind of uh, nudges him on, like Kiki, go be, you know, go go check out the parrots or whatever. And uh, Bill does. He just kind of goes to the house a little bit. Uh, I'm not really sure what he does here. He just kind of like moseys around to the house and tinkers with stuff. Yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't really make any massive discoveries here, but he does ask oh. about Benway. Well, he does, but nothing important to what to what he's pursuing. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he asks about Benway, and Eve confesses that, you know, uh, Benway works with Fidela, uh, so Frau. Um, and then Bill gets high. Well, uh, like you said, he kind of he almost like pawns Kiki on him. Yeah, like he, he's actually kind of cruel to him in some ways. Where because like you said, Kiki was not into anything that Eve was offering him. Um, but yeah, Bill is kind of like nudges Kiki into it. But uh, Bill gets high, and then we get a a a, a spectacle. <laughs> um, so there's a massive bird cage. And Bill wanders into the room, and uh, do you want to try to describe the images here? I mean, I, okay, so, (laughs) you know what you're about to see is crazy, because you have a wide-eyed, a wide-eyed Peter Weller staring, so you're like, okay, the character so far has not been has not really been affected by anything but he opens up the door he hears noises and i had the subtitles on because one of the problems is is you can't you could hardly understand peter weller in this movie because he talks so monotone down here like this so so like it said kiki moaning cloquette moaning kiki moaning i'm like okay what's going on in here so he comes around and he like does a slow walk around to this giant bird cage and there's all kinds of like birds in there making noises and uh, <laughs> Clo- Cloquet is it, it, it's the actor in some kind of like they've got like some kind of animatronic rubber thing that they've made him into and his hands are going into Kiki's face but it's like piercing his skin and it's like ripping his skin I don't know. I mean, this is the thing to Google out of the whole movie. Like, the typewriter thing, yeah. But I, it's so hard to describe this thing. Go ahead, if you have a better way of describing it. I haven't bothered to look up who did the makeup effects in this movie, but if Screaming Mad George was not on the set, I'm sure he would be very upset. Mm-hmm. Like he, he probably saw this movie and he was like, Motherfucker! <laughs> like, nobody <laughs> called me! No, no one called me? <laughs> like... Not one phone call. Are you fucking serious? Uh, so yeah, it is essentially a a giant, uh, moist, uh, <laughs> flesh-toned uh, centipede man, um, mounting poor Kiki from behind, who is also a animatronic rubberized puppet. So there's, as far as I can tell, there are no people involved in the scene. It's just two puppets humping. But um, yeah. Uh, you described it pretty well. Uh, the The head of the centipede is the head of a human, um, but the body is is much more rotund and like bulbous than a traditional like you know thin centipede. Um, but yeah, it doesn't look fun 
uh, actually for either of them to be honest no um but yeah the julian sands puppet uh, the giant centipede one uh, the face of it is what i would say is the the worst makeup effect shot in the whole movie um because it, it just doesn't look right they should have just taken julian sands's face and built some sort of prosthesis around the edge of his face kind of like uh from beyond mm-hmm. they should have just done that Thank, yeah, In, instead did, of having a fully like animatronic face it it reminds me so much of from beyond yeah very much so. i mean the even the flesh tone of it um kyle screaming... sent me a picture oh of a uh, kiki and william s burroughs in 1957 mm-hmm. so not too long after this movie takes place and Mm -hmm. yeah actually i can kind of see the resemblance to peter weller and uh for sure kiki not so much was did screaming mad george work on from beyond uh i don't know actually it's something to look up would this be would this be the makeup department or the art department or special effects i'm not even sure what this i i've actually always been really bad about um my terminology in reference to this it's like a it's like visual and special effects i've always been really bad about mixing those two departments up hmm. um, one of the mythbusters guys worked on this as the animatronics so what's gonna happen <laughs> um funny connection actually um i was just reading earlier today that uh, he also worked on arachnophobia also with julian sands hmm. that's one i haven't seen i've wanted to uh, it's, I happen to v- very much like it. It's a fun one. Um, anyway, uh, after that scene, uh, we uh, we have another exchange with uh, the Clark Nova, and well, no, actually, it's the Mugwa. And I love that after that crazy sequence with the centipede thing, uh, he comes home and the Mugwa is just like, "Hello, Bill. What's up?" Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, he's he's not having it right now. So uh, he uh, he wants to get rid of this thing. So he bags it up, and the mug was pleading with him, but Bill, if you get rid of me, you lose touch with reality. <laughs> and uh, he <laughs> he brings Tom the mug with he brings Tom the mug with head in a bag, and they exchange typewriters. And uh, Tom is oddly supportive of him. Mm. Um, he even offers him a gun, and it's like uh, I don't know what's happening here. Uh, the movie hasn't really explained it to me exactly what's going on, but. Uh, again, I don't know exactly where this scene takes place in the timeline either. Um, but Bill discovers that his Clark Nova had been tortured by Tom, um, and it tells him where to find Joan and Fidella. And uh, before the Clark Nova passes, which is actually kind of sad, <laughs> it's, uh, it sad. tells him uh, a writer lives the sad truth like everyone else. The only difference is that he types re- a report on it. And again, I think that speaks to the broader themes of the movie. Where it's like, you know, all these tragic and bizarre episodes in your life, you know, channel them into something because it's, it's in you. you that's, that's, I guess, your medium of choice, whether you want it to be or not. It found you. <laughs> um, then we cut to the barn. And this is our only scene in the barn. Um, and again, it's questionable as to when this takes place in the timeline, but uh, we see a whole bunch of mugwas hanging upside down, um, and people are strewn about. They're like shackled, and they're all suckling on the head combs, so the, the fluid that he was uh, taken from his mugwa. And uh, he meets Joan in here, and she's got like a, a notepad or something, and she's all bruised up and delirious, and 
he like embraces her and she says like this is all I've ever written and it's basically just like a whole bunch of scribbles that say all is lost so Joan's not a happy camper um, and he has her take him to Fadella um, and on his way though uh, he bumps into Hans again the I did look <laughs> I did like Hans he just kind of like he's suckling at the thing and he just like kind of grabs him and like stops suckling and just like talking to him it, it doesn't really matter what he's saying he's just like uh huh and then like uh, Bill's just kind of like over it or whatever and he's like walking away and he's like still trying to talk but then he gets his mouth back onto the little suckle thing before he can finish his sentence I thought <laughs> it was just kind of funny yeah it, it's it's goofy because you can tell that he's he's legitimately happy to see Bill but I don't know if he's happier to see Bill than he is to just be Suckle. content suckling yeah. on the thing <laughs> but um yeah uh, hans mentions benway um which plays into the next scene here where we meet fidella in the back of the barn and uh she tells him that the black meat comes with political strings so we're getting out of the black meat business and we're going into the mugwood business <laughs> it's like i don't know what we're doing anymore but you're saying words and they all sound funny and then uh what does she do kyle uh, she zips off her face and reveals herself to be George Carlin. Oh, wait, that's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, <laughs> she takes off, uh, she unzips or like rips off, like she exposes her breasts <laughs> and then she rips them. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Like, <laughs> at this point, I'm like, I'm just kind of r- r- waiting for it to be over. I'm like, okay, it's going to end any minute now. I don't know what's going to happen now. Then she rips her boobs off and it's Roy Scheider. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, uh, rips her boobs off is not a phrase I think I would ever expect to hear, but yes, she literally does that. And uh, he only has a few words here. It all goes too fast for me to keep track of what he's saying. Um, But, ooh, you can tell Roy Scheider is having a lot of fun here. Mm -hmm. He he puts some inflections on there, and he's, he's very animated as he probably wasn't allowed to be in as many roles of his as he would have liked. Because, you know, he, he tends to be like, chief brody you know yeah he tends to be like a straight and narrow kind of guy but hard apple yeah he's he's capable of much more and this is an instance of him being a, an actor mm-hmm. um but long story short uh bill wants joan so i don't know what the exchange is here but he he says like i want joan because i can't write without her and then uh cut to an indeterminate point in time um, we got jazz music, and it looks like we're in Eastern Europe somewhere. Uh, it's very gray. Um, it's The color palette is totally different from where we just were. Um, and he's driving, Bill is driving an odd red vehicle to a place called Annexia, which had been referenced a couple of times earlier in the movie, but I didn't understand the significance at the time, so I didn't write it down. Um, but it's my understanding that Interzone sent him there for, some, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. But... Anyway, we're heading to a place called Annexia, which may as well be communist Russia. Um, and we meet a couple of border cops who are played by the same cops that he was introduced to the bug by in- initially at the beginning of the movie in New York. Um, but now we're in Annexia, so it doesn't really make sense. doesn't matter. Uh, point is, two cops stop him at the border, and they want proof that he is a writer. Um, and he just kind of casually looks back into the into the back of the vehicle and Joan is asleep in there so he did get Joan um, and it's funny because before that he like fiddles with a pen like they tell him write something prove that you're a writer and he like fiddles with a pen and it almost looks like he's 
desperate because he's like, I don't have any paper. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he looks back and he wakes up Joan. He's like, hey, Joan, wake up. And uh, he asks her to do the William Tell routine again. And she just kind of smiles and she's like, oh, okay, Bill. Um, And yeah, the music swells and he shoots her in the face just as he had done to original recipe Joan. And uh, the cops welcome him to Anexia. Roll credits. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's the movie. <laughs> if you listen to this whole thing and you're lost, don't worry. Uh, you'll be just as lost watching the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, clearly we had a lot of fun talking about it. Um, there's more to the movie than I think we were able to cover. But yeah. this is that kind of movie. <laughs> this is a two-time, and this is a good class discussion. Let's let's open up the, the open up to the floor. What does what does the rest of the class think? Yeah, it actually makes me kind of bitter over the fact that I never got to do that. Mm. Um, I, I think that would have been a lot of fun. You know how in writing classes there's a douchebag. Yeah, there's ten of those in in film classes. So don't worry. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> never mind. I, I take that back. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. I've taken a few film classes. Um, but yeah, uh, this was an this was an exciting uh, review for um, I would assume Kyle as well as myself because uh, mm-hmm. I mean like I said I'm a big fan of Cronenberg. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Peter Weller. I was kind of the one that really wanted to do that this month. Um, so this was a a nice way to explore both of those things at the same time. I really hope we get to do some more Cronenberg down the road. I'm not bashing Cronenberg, but so far the films that I've seen of his. I'm not a huge fan, uh, and I've seen The Fly. I've seen I've seen The Fly, which was fine. I had no problems with it. It, it, it had I had a good time with it. Um, I love that movie. <laughs> um, Eastern Promises, which I was kind of I was kind of disappointed in. Um, I was expecting a little bit more. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so of course I love Vigo. He can do no wrong in my book. But um, yeah, just was and this was more of my cup of tea. But even for me, like this was like. I need a. I need to give this another viewing. I need this is pretty abstract still. I'm like I'm having trouble following this one. Um, I'm not saying he's. I'm not saying I dislike the guy. Just so far, I think I need a few more of his classics: Scanners, Dead Ringers, Videodrome. Wait, Kyle Kyle rolled his eyes because a person he doesn't like. Yeah, like is that that piece of shit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I'm. Not unique, but I, th- I think I have a, a capacity to appreciate the art uh, independent of the person. Um, I know that's getting harder to do these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting really hard to do these days. <laughs> but um, James Woods is, is a terrible human being. Steven Seagal's maybe even a worse human being. Possibly, I can, yeah. I can still enjoy both of their work on some level. But yeah, uh, Cronenberg's earlier stuff is more conventional, like body horror stuff that he's known for like this is an out there fucking movie mm-hmm. um, yeah. by anyone's standards let alone his but um i mean he was in nightbreed <laughs> he, he didn't make it but he was in it didn't he have a cameo in like jason x or something yes he's okay he's, he's in the opening okay, yeah <laughs> um, i like that I'm, movie that movie's fun that movie is a lot of fun it yeah, looks like it's... straight trash like it looks bad like, oh, it it's... looks like it was shot on a potato. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it is fun. It is It's fun. a lot of fun. Also, Cronenberg, 77. Did you know that? I didn't, but um, based on his output as of late, uh, I'm not surprised. He hasn't made a movie since 2014. Damn. Mm. 
That makes me sad. Yeah, doesn't it? I like a lot of his movies, but um, yeah, I don't know exactly what we're going to be doing next month. Um, but if you so, if you around. so choose, you may take the month. Um, I I this was kind of spur of the moment, and I got five episodes out of it. And August <laughs> is mine to begin with, so. Um, if you want to take July, by all means, that's up to you. We'll see. Let's see. My mood might be changing here. I don't know. Okay. Well, that being said, um, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you want to look up some of our other work, uh, we do have a website at catchinguponcinema.com. Um, and if you want to reach out to us on the social medias, uh, we do have a Twitter at Catching Cinema, as well as an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, so feel free to hit us up there. Um, yeah, like I said, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yep. Yeah.